Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to this episode. Aaron and I got the opportunity a couple months ago when we were down in Mississippi turkey hunting to go over to Mississippi State University and talk with Bronson Strickland and Steve Damaris. They're both professors at MSU and there they do some really cool deer research projects. It was really cool to talk to these guys because all of the data that they've collected in these research projects help tell us a lot about how deer behave and what strategies we should use when we're hunting them. We cover so many different topics. We talk about whether or not antler size matters when a doe is picking a buck to breed with during the rut. We talk about if bucks are nocturnal. We talk about how hunting pressure affects deer movement. We talk about how to manage better for whitetails. But we also filmed the recording of this podcast and on our YouTube channel here, Real soon, we're going to be posting that, and there'll be more visual aid to go along with what we're talking about. If you guys check the description of this podcast, you'll see down there the links that I put that will take you to their website, their Instagram page, and their YouTube channel. That way, you can continue to follow along with them throughout the year to learn more about deer and how we can be managing better for deer in the future. So before we get into the episode, I wanted to remind you guys that Exodus has a really awesome deal going on right now where you can save 20% off the Exodus Render, the SP18, and the Render SP18 bundle. This is the last call for this sale. It ends on June 13th, so you've only got a week left. When you go to checkout, if you use the code YEAR7, that's going to save you 20% off per camera. The code will also lock in savings site-wide on all camera bundles and Exodus gear. If you're not familiar with the product line, Exodus Render is their Verizon 4G LTE camera and provides some of the fastest transmission times in the entire industry. It's about as user-friendly as it gets and they've got an awesome warranty. It covers you from theft and damage for five years and they've got awesome customer service as well. So. Take advantage of this sale that they've got going on. And like I said, this is your last chance. You've only got one week left. So if you're listening to this now, get on it, get yourself a camera, and you won't regret it. Also here at THP, we shoot bear archery. And if you guys have any interest in buying a new bow this off season, we can help save you 10% off of all of bear equipment if you use the code THP10. So check out beararchery.com and save yourself a little bit of money. All right, let's talk with Bronson and Steve about the white-tailed deer. All right, but... Well. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fumble. Right. <laughs> Why don't you all tell the listeners and the viewers um, what your name is and what your title is here. All right. Go ahead, Bronson. Just, okay. Uh, I'm Bronson Strickland. And I'm a professor here at Mississippi State University co-director of the MSU Deer Lab. And my functional role in the Deer Lab is uh, I'm pretty much in charge of the, the outreach that we do. So we really try to focus on research that's gonna be meaningful to managers, biologists, and hunters. And so my role is really taking that information, trying to distill it down, the research information as best we can, and get it out to people so they can use it. So that's popular articles, this podcast, it's our website, it's all that type of media. But that's our number one role is to get it in people's hands so they can apply it. And that's what I was telling Luke. Like, I've been following you guys for a long time. I read all kinds of stuff that you all put out. It's just fascinating. Kudos to you <laughs> for doing that. 
Um, Steve, go ahead. Yeah, I'm Steve Damaris, and I'm a professor. And I'm actually the Taylor Chair in Applied Wildlife Research and Instruction here at, at Mississippi State University. Now, I want to qualify. You mentioned MSU earlier. If you Google MSU, it's going to pull up Michigan State University because that's their, their wording on their website. We're not at Michigan State University. We are MSU South. They are MSU North proper contact make sure we know what part of the country we're in here and and i've been here about 25 years and i think brunson's been here about 20 yeah yeah, Mm -hmm. about the same and and i'm the traditional research and teaching faculty at the university and so i'm i'm more in the weeds conducting the research and we cooperate in the design of the experiments and such and then i make sure it happens and and usually i'm directing great graduate students like luke and who out, go out and do the real work. But I, I'm in the weeds making sure it gets done, and then Bronson's promoting and, and helping lead the outreach. But we each have our shared responsibilities and our, our different emphasis areas, and it's worked out really good. It's been a great yeah. partnership. I should probably clarify on mine as well, is uh, and getting in the weeds a little bit at the university talk here, but my appointment is through the extension service and so a lot of people know extension county agent that's where you get your soil tested right for example and so my students so to speak are the public and landowners etc but it's also educating our county agents and so when something new when we have a problem in mississippi whether it be about deer about dealing with wild pigs or something like that i work through through those county agents to develop programs seminars etc where then the general public can come and learn okay yeah and I'm the, the traditional students on campus educator, but kind of the basis for my whole career, and I've been doing this over 35 years, is I want to do research that I can speak to a group of hunters or a group of landowners or biologists or all three combinations of those and see them excited about it. That gives me a lot of juice. I want to do what matters to those people. Right. And if it doesn't matter to them, then I'm probably not doing the right kind of stuff. So 50-plus years looking at deer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty much, yeah. Now that's adding both of us together, right? Right, right. yes. Right. I guess to start off, the stuff that's, like, super interesting, you do a bunch of GPS studies with deer, correct? Right. What the heck happens to a buck on pressured land, whether it's private or public? How do they react to it? I'm going to refer to a study we did years ago in Oklahoma with in cooperation with the Noble Foundation there. And they had a, uh, a large property that was totally in their control. And we set up an experiment where we had a third of the property with a high hunting pressure, a third of the property with a low hunting pressure, and then a third of the property which was had no hunting. And we randomly assigned those the first year. And then the next year we shifted them so that you wouldn't have a consistent year after year the same type of a pl- And then we had uh, about 25 bucks collared each year that we monitored how they responded to the different controlled hunting pressures. And we had it all arranged so that we knew the everybody had to check in. We knew the pressure and we knew who was hunting and we assigned them areas within each so that the, the concentration wasn't all in one place. It was spread across, but at a high concentration, a low concentration and none. And we, we learned a lot. One of the cool things was that as in as little as three days after opening weekend, there was a significant change in how 
bucks moved. The total distance didn't move that much, but how they moved was tremendously different. One of the, the metrics we measure is called tortuosity. And it's like, you, if you walk a mile in a straight line, that, that's not a tortuous. You can walk a mile within a football field and just walk pace you know, up and down the 10-yard the lines, back and forth, back and forth, and then come back and you know, never leave a football field and still walk a mile. That's what it felt like this morning, walking around in these creek bottoms <laughs> down here, chasing turkeys. <laughs> and so they, they didn't change how far they walked, but they were much more tortuous in the higher hunting pressures and within three days of hunting of that pressure. So torture, torturous? Tortuous. Tortuous. Yeah. Torture tortuous is when they're moving a lot in a small area in a small area and so what they were doing was focusing their movements within heavier cover mm-hmm. and not using more open cover was that with firearms hunting or was that yes, with all, it was during all gun methods season. it was okay. a control it was a 14 day gun season and was that with wild free range deer yes yep. really did you have a variety of age classes that you were monitoring through that as far as bucks and were concerned or does two, or two and a half plus it was all bucks okay two and a half plus uh, so we'd call them adults now you know you could start tweaking whether or not a two and a three-year-old is going to act like a five and a six-year-old but we just grouped them mm-hmm. okay. adult bucks and within a couple of days they're totally days. changing their behavior their their tortuosity is increased dramatically after three days of hunting pressure Really? Now, what, how long did it take before they went back to moving, I guess, how they were before hunting pressure? Just totally natural. They were going back, but our, our callers, we had a, a really intensive data collection during the season, and so the callers didn't last long, much longer than the actual season. They appeared to be returning to normal about a week after the season ended, but they still were not back to normal. What is normal movement? Like, wh- how far of a distance is that, roughly? So you kind of have the buck's normal pattern. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's tortuosity, yep. it's patterns, and the distance it travels in a day, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a baseline. Yep. And then you have the treatment applied, which is going to be hunting pressure, your different levels. Mm-hmm. And you kind of see how they deviate from what sure. they, the way they normally behave. Yep. Yeah. So some are going to move a lot, some not as much. That's individual variation. Right. But right. you just see how, on average, average they respond. Yep. Makes sense. And I think a good follow-up point there, Steve, with that is, is number one, bucks pattern you, mm-hmm. and it takes about three days, you know, that, that opening weekend, for example. Uh, and the other thing is the, the thought that <clears throat> hunting pressure or whatever, the bucks are just going to shut down. Mm-hmm. That's not true. Right. So bucks are going to move every day. They're going to eat every day. Mm-hmm. During certain times of the year, they're going to eat less, like during the peak of the rut. Right. But they're always going to move every single day. Now, it might not be where you're at because the buck is patterned where you or other people are predisposed to be. But they find the pockets in the landscape where they can safely move around, get food, check on estrus does, do what bucks do. That was was my next question was in this study, were the hunters going into like predetermined stand locations? And they were going into the the same spots consistently, like the same access routes, the same, I guess, just hunting the same areas patternably. We, we assigned them an area that was based, that the, the higher pressure had smaller areas, more hunters in that okay. area. Um, but we didn't tell them where to hunt in there. And there were I no see. pre-established stands. 
It was like mm. like they were going in on public lands. Okay. They we gave them two days before the season to kind of scout and decide where they wanted to hunt. So they did that, and then they came in and, and it was really cool. We we have uh, we also put GPS recorders on the hunters walking <laughs> cool. in, so we knew where they were. And we have some great stories that we like to tell uh, that we show with uh, where a hunter walked in, and we, we have this great deal with uh, one hunter walked into his area and was stationary another hunter walked into an adjacent area and he did a lot of walking and we have a a a buck that was in that second area where the hunter did a lot of walking when he entered the buck was right where he ended up being about three hours later but the buck moved around him and over and walked by the other guy who was just sitting stationary and and the the guy that was in the area where the buck started never saw that buck. Really, the buck was always just kind of well away of where from where he was. The stationary guy saw the buck walk by, and he didn't shoot it because we we asked the hunters not to shoot our collared bucks. Okay, um, but the bucks were exposed to hunting, and, right. and other deer were being killed mm-hmm. during the season. So they 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 were in a live fire situation. It wasn't totally right. unrealistic. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, that particular buck walked off of the property uh, after being seen by the stationary hunter and was killed an hour after he walked by the stationary hunter. Jeez. <laughs> Jeez. Stay in the stand. <laughs> Not me. Stay in the stand until all these people are moving in and out. Yeah. Increase your odds. Yeah, the yeah. I, most, most hunters can't stock up a buck. They're, they're not going to do it. Right. Figure out where they're going to be and go there and wait for them. So what's the lowest pressure area look like? Is there no human pressure in that particular section? A third of the property had no hunting pressure. Okay. A third of it had a low, and, and I, I believe the pressure was a hunter per 225 acres. And then the high pressure was a hunter per 75 acres, something, something like that. In the area where there was no hunters at, did the bucks just behave as they normally would? No. They also changed their behavior? Yes. They, the bucks on the property started adjusting at a very large scale because they knew there was hunting pressure. It wasn't so fine-tuned. I mean, would you say that's a big part of it? They just hear guns. They hear people start driving much, in. That, that, that's what I think it is. Yeah. I think you go from an environment where there's very few people on the landscape. Yep including the trucks and the ATVs and the cigarette smoke and the body, you know, on and on and on. Mm -hmm. And now you have all these people on the landscape. And so is pressure meaning that I interacted with the deer and spooked it? Or is pressure meaning that over a couple hundred acre scale, a deer is detecting humans are in the woods when they're normally not. Yeah. And and they, I I think it's a big part of it too. It's just one of those things where if you're in the woods early in the morning and it's, dark nothing's really awake yet and all of a sudden there's this gravel popping and you're seeing the lights flash up on the ridge and you got to believe that's not happening in august you know when when it's hot like nobody's out there i mean Mm -hmm. people recreate even in those areas at different times of the year not necessarily like but not at that intensity yeah and then all of a sudden to your point people are behaving differently than they are when they're going to the woods to go hunting right and even even it's it's like imagine this a uh, big forested area that's public land 
people are coming in in the middle of the summer, early summer, June, July, maybe a car here and there, joyriding through, looking for birds, just I don't know, looking for mushrooms, something like that. Very, very low population. There's not a lot of noise. And all of a sudden, it's just like it breaks loose. Hunting Ooh. season's open. Yeah, guns start firing. Yeah. Gravels popping. Lights flash. And like you said, cigarette right. smoke's lingering in the air. It's like camps start popping up. Mm-hmm. I, I think about that all the time. Just what impact does that have? And at what point is it like bucks just hightail it out of there? Were there yeah. Was there any of that where you saw bucks just totally take off and get out of there when the hunting pressure not, not showed in that up study no really they That's stayed in the same area we, we saw no measure no documented measurable change in, in distribution hmm. on a smaller scale did they move towards bedding in the areas where there wasn't hunting pressure while that occurred we couldn't or? distinguish that okay we did notice that, that they were selecting heavier cover uh-huh dur- after those first three days and what and what does heavier cover mean? Like, what are some examples of the habitat type? More in that structural area? structural cover that you can't see through. Okay. High stem count stuff. Yeah. Okay. Screening cover. That's yeah. exactly what we see. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we hunt public land that's super pressured, the majority, especially the mature bucks, like as but a mature buck may be, you know, if you're hunting in Michigan, a mature buck may be a two and three year old buck. Well, maybe not you know, officially mature, but that's the older age class buck that's on the landscape in some of those public areas. You know, in Iowa, on our public lands, we have more four and five year old bucks than older. I'm assuming Mm -hmm. this is all just anecdotal. You know, what's interesting is that they, we see the same thing when we're hunting those areas, even Mm -hmm. private land that gets hunted some, they still want to be in that high stem count stuff, or they, they want to be in a hole somewhere that is away from people. It may only be 200 yards away from people in some cases, but that's what that's what we find when we talk about buck bedding and all that that stuff all the time. Like we we're not scientists. We just are going off observation. But we we feel like we see more mature bucks bedding in locations where it, even at times where they can observe hunting pressure, where they can observe a, an access point. But it is, to your point, it's in, a th- it's in a thick pocket. Now, it may not be a very big thick pocket, but they'll spend their time right there. Mm-hmm. And that's where, we, that's where we usually find them when we go and hunt public land. Yeah. It's, so I think there's a teaching moment there for hunters. If you're on public land, seek that cover out. Mm-hmm. Use it to your advantage. If you're on private land, how about managing your habitat to create those? Yeah. And now you can start creating those areas of cover where you can hunt it more effectively. Mm-hmm. You manipulate where the cover is going to be on your landscape. Yeah. That and video the- I showed you guys a while ago on my phone, we were talking about thumbnails, um, where Matt and Adam from Land and Legacy guys came to our farm. It's 100 acres in northeast Missouri. And they did, helped us do some turkey and some deer habitat work. And that's exactly what they said. They put, like, these little hinge cut areas. They were half an acre in a strategic location and they said like this is going to be deer bedding cover if you stay out of here right you know and then you can start to then you can start to place these around your property and then link them together almost and start thinking of it from a strategic standpoint absolutely yeah i'm not i I don't know exactly where this will take the conversation but it it seems like a lot of management 
is create an opening, create a food plot, and maybe put some bait out there and stand up. And that's that's kind of the management practice. And it's like, to me, if you're hunting deer and you want deer, and, and turkeys at the end of the day, but if you want deer, it's like you got to have some sort of edge. You have to create some sort of thick you know mm-hmm. just yeah. the hunter term is thick right it's right. got to be thick it's got to be something like you guys said screen cover that you can't see into and it's just yeah. it's it's interesting and cool to hear that you know what we feel like we're seeing is true when you actually put gps collars on the deer yeah and we've done studies in well years many years ago with a cooperator friend of mine in south texas and we monitored a bunch of mature bucks and looked at where they were spending their most used area within a season and then, and then compared it to an area within their home range that they didn't use at all. And we sampled every, every, every each of four seasons and over a couple of years and a bunch of bucks. And we did a similar study here in, in central Mississippi. And in both cases, bucks were spending the most of their time in areas that had this screening cover. And, and one of the ways you get screening cover is to increase the species diversity, uh, the, the number of species of plants. And, and Luke could talk all day long about plants because he's a plant guy. And, and if you can go out and count 20 or 30 species of plants within your site, you're probably in good buck habitat, mm-hmm. buck bedding habitat. That's what me and Adam talked about with the buck nest mm-hmm. on public. Yeah. Because Perfect we example. were we were out there and we were in like a CRP grass type field situation where there was But it also had like lowlands too and a creek bottom. It did it had little wet and it had it had some like fescue and cool season brome out there, but it also had lots of like different weed communities and native plants and that sort of thing in the very best quote-unquote buck bedding area that we've hunted there's a place that we call the buck nest it's 10 15 acres and it's along the edge of a creek and that's what it is is exactly what you just said it is a field it's an old field with a pile of different plant communities Mm -hmm. in it and I you mean, look through it, and I mean, you can ragweed, see goldenrod. There's you know willow. broadleaf weeds out there. There's willows. Mm-hmm. There's anything and everything in yeah. that field. And bucks will, during certain times of the year, bucks will bed in that the edge of that field. Like we will literally hang a stand and watch them stand up out there and that stuff. But mm-hmm. it is like what you say. It's that screening cover where they can feel safe, and then they can see out. Mm-hmm. once they go to the edge of it because that's what we found when we really started diving into this buck bedding thing we actually go into the beds you know and then we try to figure out what the the deer is seen and like, what conditions he may be there on yes yeah. um and that's frequently what it is is it that is i've never heard it put that way as called screening cover but mm-hmm. that's a great way to put it because it it literally screens them away from you mm-hmm. you can't see them in there but they can a lot of times they can see out mm-hmm. and they can see where you're at in some you, situations you can get it a, a lot of different ways uh m- most commonly if you're in the southeast um and i'm generalizing here there's lots of exceptions but generally in the southeast you cut something mm-hmm. to get cover right and oftentimes in the midwest you plant something yep. to get cover but the common denominator is you've got sunlight 
going through and striking the ground, hitting yeah. the ground. So in, in a forested environment, like you were talking about hinge cutting or something like that, yeah. you have got to open the tree canopy up so that sunlight gets on the ground and it takes care of itself from that point. You don't need to plant anything at all. Uh, the diversity of plants Steve is talking about, it's in the seed bed. Mm -hmm. it's, it's going to be there. But you might be in a different environment where you might want to plant di different species. But the bottom line, it's an opening with sunlight on it. And then the question for you over time is going to be, if it's, if it's an opening where you planted, how are you going to maintain it? Mm, right. And that's where Luke would come in and say, I want to burn it every yep. three to six years. That's you know, exactly what on. these guys yeah. said, too. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Manage yeah. it with fire, basically. Yeah. And diversity, I think, you know, you may look at a patch timber and say, oh, there's all these different trees in there. But when you expose the forest floor to sunlight, it promotes growth of all different levels of vegetation versus just like a, a standard stand of hardwoods exactly. that has a closed canopy. Exactly. You have to open the canopy to right. expose that diversity. Well, these guys were talking about it being closed canopy forest and it only offering like less than 100 pounds per acre or something of food, mm -hmm. of basically forage mm -hmm. for the deer. And they yeah. said if you open it up like what you were just saying, um, hinge cutting or, or flush cutting, whatever it is, you open it up, get sunlight to the ground, you increase that by, I don't even remember what the numbers they were throwing out at me, was like a 1,000 to 1,500 pounds per acre, and then when you burn it, you get even more after that? What, yeah. what percentage of deer's diet consists of stuff that isn't just like in a field, like woody brows? What, what percentage <laughs> of stuff? Yeah, it varies with the area of the country, yeah, sure. the time of the year, but generally browse woody plants the leaves of woody plants the growing tips of the the woody plants are the staple that are the year-round diet and then what here in the southeast we really emphasize the importance of forbs which are broad-leaved non-woody weeds and in the springtime and summer when forbs are growing they're they're a big part of the diet especially in the springtime and then um, well in spring and spring browse is pretty flush with quality and so are the broadleaf forbs and so they're roughly equal in the diet but in the summertime the the woody browse leaves are kind of hardening off and getting more uh, unpalatable higher uh, lower digestibility higher lignin content and they're harder to digest and so deer will switch to a much greater percentage of the non-woody broad-leaved weeds or forbs so 80% of a diet might be Forbes in the summertime, 20% browse, maybe 50-50 in the springtime. Then in the wintertime, they're going to be looking for not necessarily a high-protein source, but the most digestible plant that's out there. And so they're in, in one study we did, another study we did in Oklahoma, they were eating a lot of native grasses, cool-season grasses in the wintertime, because they were relatively digestible. Mm -hmm. But we don't promote grass <laughs> management as part right. of deer management. Right. But if this this study area had a, a really active prescribed fire program, they were grazing cattle. They had a lot of native cool season grasses, and so they were part of the diet in the, in the wintertime, but not other times. Mm -hmm. That's interesting because think about those walk-in areas that we hunt that mm -hmm. is nothing but grass. Yeah. Like pheasant hunters are out there mm -hmm. and small game hunters. And sometimes, some parts of the year, there are deer leaving private land 
to go and feed in the middle of those grass fields. And it's <laughs> oftentimes it's been in the winter. Hmm. I could, wonder if that's what's going be. on. If because it's native grass, it, it, it is. could be. Yeah, because they're going out there and they're feeding on those plants. And then you'll see them out there in the summer with their heads down in there, you know, and it's always – I'm always thinking about what in the heck is he eating right now? What is he out? Why are they all out there right now? But there's something out there that's drawing them away from a giant cut cornfield over mm-hmm. here. And they're choosing to go and actually leave the private area that is getting zero hunting pressure. And they're coming into this area and they're feeding on this stuff in the evenings. But, oh, go ahead. Well, well, You're probably going to say this, what I'm thinking too. <laughs> go ahead. Diversity is key. Yeah. And they're so much like trying to predict exactly what they're eating. Well, it depends on what's available mm-hmm. to them. So, so that's one thing. Um, Steve talked about that area. You may go to a different area at a different time with a different suite of forages available. They may not key in on those those grasses during the cool mm-hmm. season like mm-hmm. you spoke about. There may be something better in yep. that regard. Um, the, the other thing regarding the cut cornfield is deer have to balance out their diet as well. So deer cannot subsist on cut corn alone. And and, and even nutritionally, for the balance of their rumen to keep it functioning like it should, they have to balance out different forages to counter something that's very uh, digestible, very high carbohydrate. They're going to need to balance it with another forage because and it gets really complicated with that. But But they, nutritionally, they they know what they need. They have cravings the same way we have cravings for food. Uh, they get satiated with particular food, just like we do. And salt's a great example. Hmm. Sometimes you crave salt. Sometimes you don't have anything to do with salt because you've got too much of it in your body, and your body tells you no more of that. That's why certain times of the year they'll hit salt licks or trophy rocks or whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Right? Really yeah. heavily, and then other times of the year, they won't mess with that stuff. Yeah, they don't need it. Don't want it. Don't need it. Late summer in particular, bucks during antler growth, they're pulling minerals from their skeletal structure because they literally can't eat enough to grow that ma- these you know massive antlers that they're growing. And, and does in the peak of lactation cannot eat enough calcium and phosphorus to make the milk. So they digest their bones. They basically osteoporosis. We hear about mm-hmm. older people like me. Uh, <laughs> I didn't even have to say it. Yeah, I, I, knew, I wanted to. You knew it was you coming. Cut him off. You cut them off. You cut them off. I'm the senescent one of the two. Um, they're, they're pulling. They're digesting their own bones, and then they have to. After they've finished growing the antlers, now they they're going to take time to replenish their bones, and that's why they hit these mineral licks late summer so much. I want to back up here in a minute, and I want to talk about like nocturnal yeah, bucks. Yeah, go back to I, go I back know, to like I'd... the hunting pressure stuff. But while we're on this topic, this this has been just in my brain for the last ten minutes. We're always hunting public land, and we're always talking about food sources and how they change throughout the fall. Um, it may be one thing one week, and it may be another thing another week. But even down to like the micro level. Uh, if we go into a patch of woods, for example, and there's a bunch of red oak acorns dropping and there's piles of deer sign on them, if the area is getting pressured and there's a lot of people that have been going in and out of there, we may see a bunch of deer on those acorns, but to get on a mature buck, we've got to go deeper into that security cover that you're talking about. And we'll often see them just happily browsing on whatever the heck is in there. Mm -hmm. And you... I guess what I'm saying here is that 
90% of the deer in that area may be standing up out of their beds and going directly to those acorns, you know, especially the younger bucks and the does and stuff. But the older, more mature buck is content with staying back in the brush and browsing on woody brows or whatever the heck he's got in that high stem count area of diverse cover, mm-hmm. that screen cover that he's in. And then maybe four or five hours later, he ends up on those acorns. And I mean, that's the same for a field too, right? It's yes. like you may see um, in that cut cornfield, you may see a bunch of does and small bucks come out there, but the mature buck doesn't really show up. And I mean, trail cameras, will tell you that, you know, just hunt sightings, will tell you that it's like, they're always just, I guess just where, where I'm going with that is that, is there any data out there that shows like if, if a particular deer herd or group of deer in that area are keying in on a food source, is there a bunch of diversity from deer to deer on what they're eating at that given time? Or are they all, say, October 10th, are all the deer on that particular area feeding on the same stuff? Or will deer, I guess, will they prefer some, like in this case, will mature bucks prefer to sacrifice not feeding on the acorns just to stay in security cover? Because that's what, I guess where I'm going with this is that's where we always think we see, is that a mature buck on public land that's been hunted his whole life prioritizes his security over everything else almost. Yeah. To the point where he will not, I mean, those does may run three quarters of a mile to get to a fresh cut cornfield. And he may be content with standing in there and just chewing. Right, (laughs) right. And not moving. So I, I guess I would, and I don't know if I have data. Um, this just may be me being a hunter and trying to, you know, uh, figure some things out. I, I don't know if we have definitive data for this, but that's cool I, too. I would say it's uh, <laughs> it's probably a combination of, of everything you're talking about. So first of all, there's individual variation. There's different foods individual deer would prefer. Um, there is the hunting pressure aspect of it. There is the age-related differences in experience with, like you're talking about, a mature buck. Um, the, the, the One of the things, Aaron, that I see that I particularly think is a mistake a lot of hunters make is saying or classifying uh, this particular deer, this particular buck, is nocturnal because I am only seeing this particular buck on my trail camera at night over a big food source. You don't have any information on if the buck is nocturnal or not because it's only showing up at the food source where a lot of people are at, where there's probably a lot of hunting pressure at night. And there may be a lot of other deer there as yeah, well, yeah. like an hour before dark. Yeah. And, and where he feels secure in these patches of cover just may be further away. And it literally just takes longer for him to get to that food source and you're capturing that event at night. And you're making the conclusion the buck's nocturnal. Well, he may have been up and about two hours before sunset. Oh, yeah. That's what we see. you didn't capture it because you're only hunting on the food source. Right. Mm -hmm. So is there a buck that's nocturnal? I I don't think so, no. That's the the million-dollar question. (laughs) Yeah, that's the title. That's what what we were talking about on the way down here because we have so many people that – say that you know uh, he's nocturnal he's been really difficult to hunt or the bucks in this in these areas are nocturnal they don't move during daylight after october 1st you know and 
from our experience <clears throat> hunting bedding areas on heavily pressured public land we see exactly what you just said mm -hmm. the biggest of bucks yeah. the oldest of bucks and to your point they are individuals um and i want you all to talk more about that too just stop me at any point if you want to chime in there um but that is consistently what we've seen hour mm -hmm. two hours before dark sometimes heavily pressured areas and he's standing up and he looks like he is just at home totally mm -hmm. comfortable mm -hmm. but he doesn't make it very far right yeah. and it goes back to what is a good bedding area that cover and, and we talked about earlier diversity of plants and so the best cover is a diverse habitat that has lots of species of plants that provide that screening cover because there's different growth forms and, and heights of the plants and so it all blends together into a really good patch mm -hmm. but then also more diverse plant species gives food so if you can provide screening cover that is also edible why would you go walk out in the middle of the shooting lane <laughs> yeah exactly right, in the middle of the day <laughs> right you know they didn't get that old because they do stupid things like that yeah. only yearling yearling bucks that was do the that. next thing i was going to say is um so you guys can see the younger bucks in the does behaving in different ways than the mature bucks generally yes yeah we always have to say on the average you know okay. and i know people get tired of hearing that but Deer are truly individuals just like humans. Mm -hmm. And so there are some older bucks that do some weird things that we can't explain, but just on the average, yes. It's the same thing. That buck nest area, I keep coming back to that, but there's water. There's permanent water example. right there within 60, 80 yards of the majority of those beds. And it's in a secluded creek where nobody can see them. They stand up, they go get a drink. They have an array of plants out there that they can feed on. And then right next to it, they have, you know, a change in topography with different plants, different trees, oak trees, acorns. Beyond that, they've got ag. They've got pasture land. They too. have There's everything, and it's, it's like... right there in that small area. Yeah. Um, and that's where they, I mean, we see them there all times of the year. I've bumped mature bucks out of there in the middle of June. I've bumped them out of there. We've hunted them on December. October 1st. We've seen them in December. During the dreaded October lull, when everything is underground and, you know, <laughs> nocturnal, nocturnal <laughs> we've watched a dozen bucks stand up in that one bedding area an hour before dark. Yep. Multiple mature bucks. And y'all have been in these bedding sites. You, you've seen what they look like. A lot of hunters may not know what we're talking about. And just put in a little plug on the MSU Deer Lab uh, YouTube channel. We have yep. videos that we took. Uh, in some of these heavily used sites and in the same home range the unused sites we have videos of two couple of different bucks mm -hmm. that we, yep. we did a couple of years ago and uh you know look for msu deer lab on mississippi state not michigan state yeah we'll link it msu we'll link yeah it. we'll link it deer lab for sure that's a little YouTube plug channel and you'll see what where these bucks are zoomed in we also we even had a plastic deer that we put in the spot with big antlers to show what you know how invisible the buck was huh. and and kind of the buck's view out so it's really cool stuff yeah so you would say and i don't want to force you into generalizations here but you would say often mature bucks are not nocturnal well most if not all if you're is what you're telling me and they will they will get up and move and use the landscape during the day they just use it on a 
a tighter level. What was the word that we were using earlier? Tortuosity. Yeah. Tortuous. Yeah. It's a hard one. So it's they basically <laughs> they have their bedding, their secure location for the day. They stand up and often they just meander around that. I don't know what it is, a hundred yard, two hundred yard buffer. I'm generalizing here, but that's what you see out I'll, of these. I'll explain it like this. I think this is completely safe for me and Luke may come behind us here and analyze the data differently, and I'll have to apologize for being really wrong. <laughs> um, I've never seen of, of going in and, and looking at these different bucks and looking at, are they only on their feet when the sun is down? I have never seen that with any consistency. So there may have been an individual buck, for example, on a particular day I looked at it and maybe it didn't begin moving or we could pick it up that it's moving on the landscape until 30 minutes before sunset. I mean, there are certainly some cases where they were in the bed for many, many, many hours, you know, during daylight hours. But we never across the board see a majority of the bucks are staying in their bed from sun up until sundown. They are moving around hmm. well before sundown and some still during sun up, you know, after sunrise. Yeah, I don't, I don't see any pattern like Do that. Do they have to just, you know biologically or whatever do they have to stand up and drink or chew it's, their cut or what i don't or deer yeah. have several feeding bouts every day say Me three too. to five <laughs> maybe six um and, and so they're going to be up and they're going to feed and, and think about what a deer is it's prey so prey animals their main job is to eat breed and not be killed by a predator who well, they can eat and then they, during breeding season, they're going to maybe be a little different. They're going to spend more time looking for the breeding opportunity. But if it's not the actual breeding season, they're going to eat, and then they're going to hide. And, and so they eat for an hour, hour and a half, and then they, they bed down. And they're going to bed in cover. And some of our recent analyses that Luke's been doing that's uh, been put out on our, our social media, and you might have a link to that too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we can do all that. <laughs> yeah. Luke, Luke's done some really interesting uh, visual presentations of individual bucks and uh, showing seven or eight bedding areas within a week's time. So the old idea that they have just that bed right. bed site that they go to, you know, it, that, there may only be one where you hunt, but... No, and, there's and, not. There's multiple. Yeah. There. So, so they're moving around the landscape, feeding, and then bedding nearby, and then getting up and feeding, you know, maybe a few hours later or maybe five hours later. It takes, they, they chew their cud. They eat a lot. They don't chew it well. And then they go hang out and belch the food back up. Doesn't sound pleasant, but that's like cows do it. Yeah. And, and deer are ruminants. Their stomachs are different, right? Yeah. Like they have a different type of stomach completely right. than what yeah. we do. Four-chambered ruminant. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly right. So they chew cud. Yeah. And so that's kind of, you know, we look at it from the, the evolutionary perspective and so forth, but it, it is really a, a good survival strategy for them. And deer are a ruminant, just like cows are a ruminant or a buffalo or something like that. Their strategy is a little bit different because they eat, they select very high-quality food. Mm -hmm. A cow's on a pasture. It's got a great big old giant stomach. It has got to eat a lot of food during the day because it's very low quality. A deer selects for higher-quality food, and its name is called a concentrate selector. That's their little zoological category. But it works to their advantage is because 
they go out and cherry pick particular plants and parts of those plants and they eat it really really quick they chew it very quickly just to get it down and then you go find your bed and you ruminate you you chew your food so it's kind of a survival strategy for them they don't have to be out eight hours a day like a cow to fill their belly Mm. they can do it in just a few feeding bouts that's fascinating visibility of deer is one of the kind of indices that a biologist can use when we go out on a property if we're seeing a lot of deer around during the daytime it's probably not a well-managed property because they're out a lot during the daytime they're probably out a lot because they're looking for food well-managed property that has a good food forage base they're not spending a lot of their time walking around looking for food they go eat and then they bed so a really well-managed place you don't see a lot of deer driving around in the daytime just don't hmm, that's interesting it, you you would think the opposite honestly i would have guessed the opposite i'm always thinking like for example here i've been noticing a ton of deer in certain areas we'll just be driving past open areas where there's like a field or something and there's like 15 deer out there and i'm like oh man there must just be this just must be great deer habitat around here absolutely the opposite huh yeah interesting the, the only field in that instance that has access to is in that field and it, the way i explain it too is why in the world when you're driving down a highway or there's so many deer adjacent to an interstate yeah. eating yeah. it's because there's no food in the forest mm-hmm. right there's been no management yeah. on Clint, the forest right. it's Close all canopy. by the interstate yep. yeah exactly you were talking earlier about eat by sunlight. a car whizzing by 80 miles an hour right it does it because it has to yeah that yeah, that doesn't make any sense. It's not. It's not, it doesn't seem like a safe option. But not. I mean, you see anything from fawns to gigantic bucks feeding in the middle of the night, right along, the, right, right along a four-lane highway. It's pretty insane. That's their food plot. The yeah. the canopy thing is a big uh, thing that's been on my mind in general for the last um, several years, hunting different areas in Appalachia, just big hilly timber. It, it's crazy to see how deer densities change dramatically when you're in these big open areas where, you know, as far as like an aesthetic goes, yeah, the woods is beautiful when you've got these big oak trees and the forest floor is open and everything just looks nice. It looks appealing for the human eye, but deer don't necessarily want to live there. And if they do, it doesn't seem like the carrying capacity is nearly what it is when there's some sort of disturbance that has opened the canopy to allow the sunlight to hit the ground. And I just think that that's something that I see consistently in travel is just very, very overlooked from a management standpoint is there's just not, I mean, a lot of landowners just aren't thinking about it or they're not educated on it it's probably a combination of both well think of think of examples too this is like on our side we we deal with with uh go to a national forest or a wildlife refuge or Mm -hmm. something and you have this really pristine looking forest like you're talking about and they want to prescribe a timber harvest Mm -hmm. and so many people are going to get upset because Mm -hmm. you're cutting down those trees right well, the wildlife biologists that are interested in the things we are, like, cut some of those trees down yeah. and get some sunlight mm-hmm. on the ground and, and make some food for, for deer and cover for turkey, et cetera. Yeah. But so many people have that image of that park-like mm-hmm. forested scenario. It looks aesthetically pleasing, right, right. and it's horrific deer habitat. Yeah. Might be great for gray squirrels, yeah, fox squirrels. Sure. Yeah. 
something lives everywhere under every circumstance. Mm -hmm. What we have to understand is what are we most interested in and target species Mm -hmm. for a particular area. If you're managing for red cockaded woodpeckers, you want loblolly pine 80 to 120 years old. Forrester would never like that because it's past maturity and you're losing money on the timber Mm -hmm. and nobody wants to, you know, Forrester would want to harvest loblolly pine at 20 to 25 years, not mm-hmm. 120 years. Yeah. So public lands, I think, in particular, have to worry about a whole lot of different pub- public perceptions oh, yeah. on what what do they want from that land. Well, it's everybody wants everything from public land. It's mm-hmm. really hard to focus on let's do the best we can for deer and turkey. Oh, yeah, and to your point, like we'll take a specific piece of public land, say it's 500 acres, and there may only be 50 or 60 acres on that piece that has got really good habitat and that are what I would say really good spots mm-hmm. to, you know, catch a big buck outside of the rut, you know, before that. Yeah. And once everybody figures that out, well, then those particular areas out of that 500, they start getting hit even harder. So you're not pressure, your, your hunting pressure isn't evenly distributed across that landscape. Everybody goes where the deer are. Right. You know, but the reason why is because the deer aren't evenly distributed across that landscape. They're only in certain sections. I, I was going to s- ask one question. It's like, obviously we're talking about deer and turkey and we focus on that a lot. But if you're looking at just the whole scale of it across the landscape to promote wildlife diversity as a whole, the whole landscape would have to be diverse right you you have to have diversity across the board so just doing something different than what is in your surrounding area is probably a pretty good start for all of wildlife in general because i think you know if if you're explaining to a non-hunter you know that you're only managing for deer and turkey it's like well like you said what about the woodpeckers what about an owl what about you know rabbits whatever but Across the board, diversity is the most important thing, right? I, yeah, if, if that's your objective and, yeah. and that's the way a professional would manage a large piece of property mm-hmm. like that anyway, is yep. there's going to be uh, a heterogeneous landscape where we have a really old age structure in terms of vegetation, very young age structure, and disturbance occurring every couple years. And by default, managing the landscape like that you're going to have habitat for deer and turkey and the, the things that people like to hunt, but you're also getting the diversity of wildlife diversity in general mm-hmm. because you have diverse habitat. Yeah. I think, I I mean, that's like the dream, right? Yeah. You just have this big property where you could just, you know, do it all. But yeah. anyway, yeah, it's, it's my, probably it's too far-fetched. Too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, you still have to focus on, you have to decide what you want to manage for because sure. you're managing for squirrels, mm-hmm. then the big, mature hardwoods yep. might be perfect mm-hmm. walk through and your squirrel little your little squirrel dog can run and without yep. getting caught in the briars yeah. and but that's not deer habitat right right, right. and it i guess it is just interesting to me still to see private land too not just public private land too that just has so much of that open timber just so much of that mature forest that wide open and it's like well why aren't the deer here and the solution always seems to be just throw food at it throw as simple as baiting where places that are legal people will do that a lot or some sort of green food plot or or a a food source and it just seems to me that 
the this, thing I noticed because we did the same thing yeah. twenty oh, years yeah. ago on our property. You know, it's like, well, Tons we need people. to put. We saw the TV shows and whatnot. And we're like, hell, we need to put a food plot <laughs> yeah. out here. Yeah. So we did, and the hunting got better. Right. And we're like, oh, that's because of the food plot. And when I talked to Matt and Adam, they're like, it was absolutely because of the food plot. But you guys did one. You did step one of thirty, and then you ended there. Mm-hmm. It's like you. It got a little bit better from that food plot. It's like think about. If you go and you do all of these things, including the burning, including the hinge cutting, including the flush cutting, mm-hmm. you know, and you start transforming different sections of your property and you use what's already here naturally, it's like you're going to see dramatic leaps and bounds increases. Mm-hmm. And that's what got me real fired up after they came because I, my you know, brain was melting the mm-hmm. whole time. So in that scenario, Aaron, what, what you did by adding food you increased observability yeah. of the deer population you had. Exactly. But you did not grow the deer population because the limiting factor was cover or managing your forest or something like yeah, that. Yeah, closed canopy forest, basically, yeah. is what it ended up being. They're like, they're, you're making 50 to 100 pounds of deer food out here on 100 acres of timber. No yeah. wonder you're seeing deer in your food plot. It's for the same they stuff we've been choice. talking about. Yeah, And it's really frustrating federal biologists that I talk to managing federal lands, there's there's a percentage of the citizens, and they have a right to their opinion in, in the U.S., that don't want any timber being harvested. And so most federal properties, if timber harvest is an option for them, say it's not a national park, U.S. Forest Service or f- federal refuge systems, they can harvest timber as part of their management. But I've been told that generally they prescribe a harvest. They can expect it to be delayed for years due to litigation because they're going to get sued. Hmm. Because somebody says, well, you shouldn't be harvesting timber. You should be protecting and preserving the habitat. But if you put it in the context of understanding what different wildlife species need, then it makes sense that you are harvesting some timber because you're managing not just for that group of people's perception of unmanaged pristine preserved habitat we're managing for the wildlife and the recreational use of the wildlife on those lands Mm. so you have to put some sunlight on the ground yeah i also think too from a private land perspective it's like the more that's the that's where you can really make the impact that's right it's like yeah. if you have and the it's same with turkeys. Same when we were talking to Dr. Chamberlain about it with yeah. turkeys. Like you can really make an impact on yeah. private land. Yeah, if and you I just th- take your time, take some of your time, even if it's land that you don't hunt, mm-hmm. even if it's land that you know is owned through through your family that you right. want to improve for wildlife. There's things that you could be doing for the deer herd there mm-hmm. um, that may not take a lot of time and effort. I mean, quite frankly, after what I've Matt and Adam came to the house and they were there for a day. Mm-hmm. And they did so much work that, uh, and immediately they were putting trail cameras over those cuts mm-hmm. in the woods. And they're like, you're going to get pictures of deer on these cameras within the next two days. I'm like, I haven't seen a deer in these woods in five years while I was hunting. And immediately those deer are coming in there and they're eating those buds mm-hmm. on the trees that they cut. Yeah. yeah. And and it, we did some cool research with our colleague, Marcus Lashley, uh, looking at stump sprouts. Yeah. Stump sprouting and, you know, half cutting the tree and leaning it over makes the available browse that's up there now available. Mm -hmm. So the deer are going to come to it where there's no food before. Now you've got some. 
but the quality of that food isn't necessarily great. It's just there for the first time. Sure. Mm-hmm. Now, if you actually cut the tree completely and let the stump sprout, the new the sprouts are going to be extremely high in concentrated protein and minerals. And I think Bronson, you came up with the term mineral stumps. I can't remember if it was me or Marcus, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it was. I think you. you I don't he, know. He's great with cute names. <laughs> Keith Pope calls names. those ice cream cones. Yeah. That's what he said. He's like, we cut those stumps off, those deer come in, and you just see them eat it mm-hmm. all the way down. Mm-hmm. And so the reason that's happening is you have the, the tree still alive. You just you just kill the top of it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not shooting all it. these nutrients out. Yeah, but well, well, you have uh, the amount of roots that was necessary to sustain a full tree, but now you've taken that away. And so now you have all those resources coming up into those smaller shoots, and the nutrient concentration is a lot greater. That's what's interesting, because you said a while ago, they're so selective in what they eat, so they know that. They know that that's better for them. And they, that's just... And selective. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's wild. One thing I this is we're gonna back up here a little bit, but <laughs> I was thinking about this earlier, how we get questions all the time from people that says, Oh, you can't deer hunt in the mornings during the early season. That's a waste of time. Or, you know, midday hunting's only good during the rut. While I would agree it's probably better during the rut, we've thrown a lot of that stuff out the window and trying to relearn how to hunt these things. Like we had to break a lot a lot of our old habits when we started hunting mostly public land across the country. And what we've seen is that, you know, we've we've seen a lot of mature bucks on their feet in the middle of the morning or even the middle of the day mm-hmm. in the middle of these bedding areas mm-hmm. on heavily, heavily pressured properties. Yeah. I, I have one little anecdote that, that mirrors that, and that was, again, working with Marcus Lashley. And uh, so we went into a, a, a forest stand, and did the kinds of things that, that, that we recommend. So it was, it was heavily thinned and then also using fire. And about two years post-fire, you've got this really richly developed mixture of grasses and forbs. And what we saw by, by putting camera traps all throughout the stands and comparing it to other adjacent stands that weren't managed is that not only were the deer, of course, selecting to use that stand, they were also one of the peak times of day was 9 a.m. during hunting season where the peripheral properties are heavily hunting. And so, it, and so it's not, not only that you've created a place that deer are going to bed and use and provide some food, they were using it at a time of day that you normally don't see. And we think that's just, just because, number one, disturbance was really, really low, but they also felt very secure. They could literally stand up and, you know, they would have to tip their head kind of above it, you know, to, to see anyone. So they can work their way and navigate through that stand and feed at 9 a.m. And at least if you're on the ground, they would hardly be detectable. Yeah, hmm. that's exactly what we see. If it's during the day, they're in that security, mm-hmm. but they will move. Like I mean, we've seen instances on, well, and this is a, maybe a good segue into the weather stuff. We've seen instances on really hot days when deer, quote-unquote, shouldn't be moving. In the middle of the day, that buck stands up, October 1st, whatever. He stands up, and he walks 65 yards, 70 yards from where he was bedded and gets a drink out of the creek. 
munches on some plants for 20 minutes and then goes back in there and lays down. Mm-hmm. And I know that's really hard to predict, but when you're inside of those secure areas and you actually observe them do that, it makes you think, like from a hunting strategy standpoint, how many opportunities am I missing potentially at right. killing these things? Mm-hmm. Right. We like to say, if you build it, they will come. Yeah. Like from the Kevin Costner Field, field of, of Dreams. Dreams. Yeah. If you build it, they will come. And if you create the habitat characteristics that we've been talking about and that we show in, in some of our videos, the deer will be there. The reason hunters don't see deer is because they're not where the deer are that are taking advantage of the resources that are available to them. You know, they're not in the right place or the right time. Right. They could be in the right place, and then the time isn't as much of an issue. And to your point earlier about the studies revolving around pressure, once you once a hunter decides he's going to go in and out of the same tree stand every day for two or three days in a row, yeah, you're going to see fewer deer, I'm yeah. assuming. Yeah. So, so because they're, they're not leaving the area, but they're just aware that you're there, and they're not using that area during daylight when you're there. Yeah. So, so like the, the cover patches you just created— so you've already documented deer are there and using it within two or three days. Well, don't go in there and disturb the deer all the time because they may either, they may keep using that cover, but you've kind of forced their hand where maybe they don't stand up and browse around the periphery of that cover patch now because they're under pressure and they sense that you're there. So you still have to be kind of smart about it. I know where the cover is at, but hunt the cover strategically just like you would hunt the food source as well. Yeah, with access in mind, uh, and you know, wind. your ground scent, your wind, all those right. things. Right. Yeah. And our Brunson, our, our study in Mississippi was different than the one in Oklahoma. Oklahoma, we had areas with a specific number of a concentration of hunting pressure. And in our study in Mississippi, it was different. Why don't you talk a little bit about that, how we learned different responses by deer in terms of hunting pressure on this large acreage of private landowner. Yeah, so it was uh, roughly a 60,000-acre private land, and that's a collection, a patchwork of, of landowners. Um, hunting pressures probably differ, you know, somewhat on that big acreage, but it's around on any given year about 50 different bucks have GPS collars on them. So rather than where Steve was referring to earlier was in Oklahoma, and they could literally, because of the land, they could – design the treatments of this is going to be a heavy hunted area this well this is private land we, we can't tell them you know do or do not hunt on a particular day or a particular area so it was monitoring them we could still get the hunter to let us know here's where i hunted this is my start time and my end time so we could end up beating uh building for for every day and week by week etc kind of a heat map of the landscape like you see a heat map for where deer use is or whatever. We, we could build that for where the high hunting pressure was. Right. And, the, and then we could look at how are deer responding to that. And so we divided that up into uh, days where there was relatively low hunting pressure, average hunting pressure, and really high hunting pressure. And take a guess, and this is not a trick question, what are the high hunting pressure days? 
Saturday and Sunday. Absolutely. Your weekends are, are your, your Unless you're in PA or Virginia or something where they don't allow it. But Yeah. And so here, yeah, in the south, you generally have a long hunting season, so you don't have to just hit it hard for five days right. or 14 days. You, you, you have some flexibility. Mm-hmm. We definitely saw some, some notable shifts in where deer were spending time. But to me, it was relatively underwhelming. So we, we did see deer were spending a lot of time uh, around food. So during daytime versus nighttime, they were spending a lot of time at these different food plots and agricultural plantings and so forth. But really what we saw is when, when hunting pressure was most intense is that we did not see a particular natural let's say forest type or habitat type selected for. So we had like upland hardwoods, bottomland hardwoods, uh, pine stands, etc. When the pressure got really intense, we didn't see they're all moving to bottomland hardwoods. Okay. They're all moving to upland pine. We didn't see any of that. We basically saw there was no selection, meaning the way we interpreted the data. And I remember working with Colby, I think when he gave us the data, I was like, well, you've, you've got a math error here because if the selection in these stands is going down, it's got to be going up somewhere. And the bottom line was that that wasn't the case, is that there was no discernible pattern. Once hunting pressure became intense, they didn't, in a pattern, shift to a particular forest or vegetation type. It was just every buck for himself. Wherever you can find a spot on the landscape where you're not getting pressure, that's where it's going to be. And it might be adjacent to an old field. It might be in a pine stand. It may be here or where. But they collectively did not behave the same way. They individually selected areas where there was less pressure. And, and, and but that was the common factor then, was they selected areas where they weren't getting hunted. Well, we, yeah, we assume that because there was no uniform pattern. Okay. There was no collective response. To I the see. They kind of okay. individually responded. Sure. Yeah, and like you said, I'll, I'll clean it up now. <laughs> oh, well, th- there was, and he's correct, but there was a pattern looking at it in a slightly different way. We, we did what's called a, a resource selection function where we looked at the characteristics of where deer are going where they did prefer, and then we looked at where the habitat types and the land cover types that hunters were hunting in, and they were almost mirror opposites of each other. Ah. The hunters, where the hunters were, the deer weren't. Where the hunters weren't, the deer were. So it wasn't necessarily a, a exactly particular right. habitat type that they went to. It was, where are there not hunters? I'm going to go there. It was, it was, it was so cool because... Uh, I think it's in the first study in North America that looked at hunter preferences and deer preferences simultaneously. They're different. The the, the deer Martin. are smarter than the hunters. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> That's yeah. not news to you, is it? <laughs> no. And so, yeah, so can you imagine, and I think you can, where on average did hunters select to hunt? Open areas, food plots, open timber stands where they can see yeah. quite a distance. Or, or they where can they have an easy deer, access. Or they where can walk down a road and climb into a stand or a box blind or whatever that is. And that, easy that's access. exactly what, what we found. Yeah. And like if they've got a, if a hunter has got to cross water that's over their knees on the other side of that water, there's probably going to be some bucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because 
Now, if it's only water that's ankle deep, that's a different story. Yeah. They're because they're getting over there. But yes, that's exactly what we see all the time is we're always looking for creative ways how to get into an area. Some bucks may bed 250 yards from a parking lot in a little thicket that people may walk by. And when we go and hunt that spot, we don't park in that parking lot. We go to the other side of the property and then come through it around the back way and get into that thick stuff with it. Mm-hmm. Because it's a way that nobody else is doing right. it. Right. And he's not expecting no that. pattern. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we have, you know, you may sacrifice, when you're hunting these bedding areas like that, you may sacrifice a lot of your sight. You may be mm-hmm. sitting on one trail. Right. That is thick. And you may have two little openings in it and you may see one deer, but it may be him because you're in his bedroom with him or you can sit in the more open areas like what you're talking about over uh you know a food plot on public land or private land and see 15 deer in a night but you may not see the one that you're after or that mature buck or whatever but but as the the season goes on and more and more hunting pressure you can just see where the, the hunter perception is that because a majority of the time they're hunting the openings they're hunting food deer have now figured them out you can see where they would say we don't have any deer the right bucks are gone the deer aren't moving well Eternal. we had collars on the deer and they absolutely were moving they just weren't moving where you were at during that time of day because they patterned you that makes sense hunter, the hunter perception is a good term in general yeah it, yeah it's it's something i think about all the time it's like well that's that's what we think and myself included like you know while you think sometimes you're like, oh, I'm being pretty creative here. It's like probably not nine times out of ten because nine times out of ten you don't get one, right? It's like, <laughs> it's like, oh, I think I'm doing something real sneaky here. It's like, oh, yeah, probably and, not. And most hunters, they base their conclusions on a very limited amount of information. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, we do uh, workshops and seminars on the timing of breeding. Mm-hmm. And we'll have hunters say, well, I know when breeding happens, it was, it was a week later – uh, this year than it was last year. I, well, how do, how do you know that? They're running early this well, year, yeah, right? I, it's I, like, I, saw, I saw one buck chasing a doe a week earlier, and so the breeding season was earlier. Yeah. No, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> breeding season isn't something that shifts from year to year. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. Yep. And it doesn't respond to things like the harvest moon and things like some of those theories that you hear. And, and It's the same time every year. Within a population, they are going to be breeding the same time every year unless there's some major change in their health based okay. to the food or a major change in adult sex ratio, something Drought like that. Drought or something like that maybe would have Drought something to do with Drought may, but generally the deer population is going to breed with the same peak breeding time year after year. Does the moon have anything to do with daylight activity? During the rut? Or does that have to do with nothing? All, Let's hear it. Other, other than how much we can see at night out there. Uh, for, first of all, Open we, a giant can of worms here. <laughs> yeah. I can see you light up. So Let's hear it. So, so first of all, we hunt. And if there was a, a recipe or a secret sauce that, that we could, a, a pattern we could figure out and apply it, we not only would we be writing about it and telling we would be doing it ourselves. <laughs> we haven't seen anything. I haven't seen anything. Steve may differ. 
I've never seen anything that would make me compelled to hunt on a particular day or not based on the moon. Now, None at all. Let, let me qualify that. I've been a very frustrated researcher for the last, well, all the time we've been looking at this GPS collar data with intense movement stuff. I've been very frustrated because I have firmly believed, based on nights and nights and, and other biologists doing nighttime collections of deer, we, we do it a lot here in Mississippi for special research projects. And we've, over the years, I and, and other biologists that do it a lot, we avoid trying to collect at night when there's a full moon because the deer are not quite as normal as they are other times. That doesn't mean they're not moving. It just means that they're not moving their normal times. Now, the frustrating part is every time we've gone to prove what I know, <laughs> we haven't been able to prove it with the dang data. Right. So the deer aren't doing necessarily what I and fellow biologists that have spent a lot of nights driving around the back of pickup trucks. You know, we, we know what we know. We believe it. But the data doesn't show it. Huh. That's cool. And and when and well tied back to the whole nighttime collections, it, you know, regardless of the moon phase, if you drive around long enough, you you might be driving the same roads over and over throughout the night. You might drive the same roads for three or four hours and not see a thing, and then all of a sudden the deer are everywhere. Now it might be from seven to nine one night, and then that same night they'll start bedding down because they've. They've fed and now they're in right. their cover, and then they come back up about five or six hours later. You drive long enough, you're going to pick up a couple of these activity patterns, uh, periods when when you can collect deer for research purposes. During those full moon nights, I think what we learned is that we don't want to. Maybe we just want some nights off. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. we just don't want to be collecting every night of the month. Right. So we we blame the well full moon. We're going to avoid that. Uh, it just doesn't show up. That signature mm -hmm. uh, doesn't show up. But in the you do data. see it with photo period and I guess the length of the days as far as the timing of the rut. It occurring every single day in a given population like what you said earlier. Or photo not every single day, but occurring the same time each year. Yeah, photo period and, and it's people that believe that the moon, the brightness of the moon affects the photo period enough to influence deer breeding i don't believe it and the data that i've looked at the extensive data doesn't support that it changes it all go ties back to sample size i have a for example i, I, lo I love to dispel <laughs> what people think they know when we do these sh workshops and stuff and hunters believe that oh yeah the rut, time of the rut changes from one year to the next on my property I start with a, a data of like a hundred data set of 135 adult does where we have collected over many years on on a same property, a large large public area, for example. I'm thinking in my head right now, and if you pick out one year of sample of, of 10 or 12 does, the breeding date based on those 10 or 12 does, where we we collect the doe after the breeding season, we measure the fetus very accurately estimate when she was bred. So we collect a lot of data that way. That's why we do all these nighttime collections is documenting when breeding takes place. And you look at 10 out of the 135, and you have a peak breeding date of, say, December 20th. 
and you could randomly select. It doesn't necessarily tie to the year. You just select 10 animals out of that. And you might have a December 20th, another 10 animals, December 30th, another 10 animals, January 5th. You take all of those 135 animals, and the peak is the peak, and you got about a 45-day window where 90% of the breeding takes place in that population year in, year out. You might have a second, typically you have a, a very small second rut because 5 to 10% of adult does are not going to take their first estrus, their first breeding. So they'll recycle and you've got some younger deer that are kind of cycling in late their first time. So you get the second estrus happening. Uh, but the fact that one year it's different significantly than another, it's, it ain't happening. Okay. so how do you hunt during the rut that's what everybody wants to know um (laughs) do you just spend as much time as possible hunt Hunt. yeah the 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 way we very simply break down um when deer moving and how to hunt is that in general so this is how the casino would win if you wanted to manage your hunting like the house or the casino would do it it's like uh, if you ran this a hundred times, you know, 60% of the time the house is going to win, or it's probably more than that, but you, you get my point here. The way the house is going to win is that hunt as often as you can. Um, deer are going to move most around sunup and around sunset, and they're going to move more during the rut. There's a lot of little individual stories and variation in particular, but but when you just look at the data year in and and year out and look at their daily movement patterns, I mean, it follows a bimodal movement pattern with a little movements during the middle of the day. Sometimes in a buck got up and got a drink, but they they have an extended feeding bout centered on sunup. Some days it might be a little before, some days it might be a little after. And a, and, a, and a distinguishable movement bout, feeding bout, at, at sundown. And so that's on a daily scale is when it's going to be. And then when you look at that over the, the period of time from, uh, say, October 1st to January 31st, there's going to be all these little squiggly lines of they're moving and they're moving, and then, you, and then here comes the pre-rut, and then here's the rut, and then here's the post-rut, and, and on it back. smooths back out. And you can line up the moon phase with that. You can line up all the stuff and try to make a pattern, and it never works. Bottom line is spend as much time out there as you can. Um, and this, I'm just asking, I guess. And in the rut, you have higher odds of seeing bucks up and moving during the day. Correct. Because, exactly. because they're just moving more in general. Because yeah. they're following the does that are in estrus and they're not necessarily going to be uh, normally beha- behaving normally. They've got seven, seven or eight bucks chasing them and bothering the heck out of them. They're not doing their normal right. feed for an hour, bed for three hours, feed for an hour, bed for three hours. They're being bought the pestered for two <laughs> solid days. So they're going to be up and around trying to get away from the bother, if nothing else. Oh, yeah, we and, see that, that behavior change. Like, and during the rut, we've... We actually see, I don't know if there's a pattern to this per se, but we see mature bucks push estrus does up against something, almost like they can defend her better 
in that area. They will push her to a point where she can't go any further that way, whether it's a river or it's a road or it's a fence or whatever it is. And we see that pretty regular. And that's, they'll and pin that's her against a, a river or something to basically keep her from doing what you're saying, mm-hmm. running off. Yep. And that's a situation where it bumps your odds as a hunter to be able to stalk that buck. <laughs> <laughs> he puts himself in a He's very vulnerable little position. Little brain instead of his big brain. <laughs> yes, yeah, he is exactly. during that time. Yeah. Exactly. But is that? I guess that's a question that I would be curious that if it has. Uh, if you guys have any research that proves or disproves that theory, like often we see bucks what we call pin does against something that another deer can't get downwind of them so a road a river those are the two most common ones that you can see i don't have a good answer for that i, I was wondering might you have some observations from the deer pens because i know you will see them get them in a corner yeah in, in our deer pens and and many years of spotlight counts in many properties in texas uh, where I was 15 years, um, and a lot of Texas is high fenced, and so mm-hmm. you find corners of fences. I've seen a buck w- with a doe wedged in against the fence corner, mm-hmm. and and trying to keep her there. Yeah, huh. and I've also driven through down a road and all of a sudden seen a buck, and then you know another buck and another buck. And holy smokes, what's all these bucks doing here? And then I'd see a, a buck and a doe, and then I'd see another buck and another buck as I'm driving. You know, it might be just 200 yards. Right. Six or seven, eight bucks and a doe. Yeah, right. One buck is standing right next to her, and all these satellite bucks just hovering around waiting for their, their <laughs> we opportunity. We see that all the time. Yeah. Yep. And it's so cool. And, and another time, I mean, all these anecdotes uh, – Another time I was sitting on a on a food plot in a stand in Texas, but uh, I saw a doe kind of trotting through the food plot, and behind that was an older, larger antlered buck trotting about 50 yards behind her, and then behind him, 20 or 30 yards, was another buck, and I think it was seven different bucks in a line ch- following after this doe, and they they got went from older, bigger down to the spike yearly yeah. oh, at yeah. the end he was t- t- trailing along hey, we see the too. same thing and we and, well, one, i'm sorry no no yeah, you're, you're, right. you're fine this but, is exactly the stuff that we see all the time uh-huh. and we get folks that that message in or email or whatever and they're like the deer aren't rutting in my spot it's like no they probably are if it's if you live in missouri and it's november 15th they're probably rutting. You're right. just not where they're rutting exactly. right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're they've got they've got other plans, yeah. and that goes back to what we were talking about earlier. I've had a bunch of rut hunts where I didn't see a deer all day. <laughs> yeah, but oh, yeah. that doesn't mean the rut was not going on. It just means the activity, like Steve is talking about, is 500 yards away, and I can't perceive it. Right, mm-hmm. but it is happening. Yeah. And because nothing, all the data shows that it's happening. The data happening. are clear. Yeah. 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 And nothing I like to dispel is when hunters say, well, you know, they're, they're going to, it's getting cold, so they're going to start rutting now. No, they're not. <laughs> they're just going to maybe be moving more, and you're going to see the deer more because it's cooler. Mm-hmm. But they're and maybe breeding. maybe you want to go hunt because it's cold yes. and you see some activity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the, a doe doesn't come into estrus because it all of a sudden got cooler or yeah. warmer. I mean, that, that process, you talked about photo period earlier. Photo period controls, uh, sets 
in motion the physiology of a, of a doe so that as and, and deer are white-tailed deer are short day breeders so as the, uh, the daylight is getting less in the fall it, it kind of clicks them to start their reproductive machinery going and, and an individual doe tends to breed consistently within a week or two and, and that's another one of those things that I believed I knew I said, does will breed plus or minus four or five days the same time every year. We did a study with a huge data set and, and proved me wrong. Yeah. But they generally are still pretty consistent. And that doe is... An individual doe. An individual doe. But then the real consistency is that population pattern that I talked about. But then that doe is going to breed pretty consistent plus or minus a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and something as different as a factor like... The previous summer and fall, did she raise two fawns through to weaning, or did she lose both fawns? If she let, lost both fawns, she's going to come into estrus about five days earlier because she's in, she's in better nutritional condition because she wasn't drawn down from the, the heavy demand of lactation. So that's some of the variations that you see. But year, to, year in, year out, an individual doe is generally going to be breeding about the same time. It has nothing to do with how warm it was today or how cold it was today so let me add to that <clears throat> the 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 key to understanding when the peak of the rut is in a particular area it's nothing about when's a good time for bucks to run around and chase does because it's either really warm or really cold the whole key to it is when does a doe a mom drop her offspring to give it the best chances of survival in the South, there's a lot of flexibility because we really don't have these environmental selective forces like you do in Iowa and above. Mm-hmm. You get in Canada, or the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, or something, you got a very defined portion of time to where the fawn's got to hit the ground now. It can't be too early, or there's still a bunch of snow on the ground. It can't be too late, or it didn't live long enough to get enough sufficient body mass to make it through the winter. Now, what's going to be a reliable cue? to that doe, to that mother, year after year after year about now is when I need to ovulate. Is it because a cold front came through? So maybe let's just say around here the optimal time would be, let's say, December 1st. What if you have a cold front come through October 15th? would, would, Would evolution really select for a doe coming into heat at that time? So that would be a very bad signal for when the rut needs to occur. How about some type of moon phase that's oscillating year after year, shifting? No. But what happens consistently year after year after year is the ratio, the photo period of daylight hours to nighttime hours. Mm -hmm. That is the consistent clock to let them know now is the time for me in in my population where it's it's adapted to have this this peak rut timing. (laughs) I think if you think about it from that perspective, it's like, simplifies it almost a little bit if you're a deer hunter it's just yeah, like yeah. if you know in general when the deer rut in your area that's a good time to go hunting yeah. and to spend as much time out there and like what you said a while ago hunting in the mornings and the evenings is that's your most productive time pretty much any time that during the whole season yeah because that's when the most deer are moving i've, I've killed deer at 11 a.m yep same noon, here a one I, i've killed a deer every hour on the hour th- but, you know, if I'm going to place a bet 
on any given day, am I going to see more deer an hour around sunrise or an hour before sunset? I'm, I'm always going to go at that time. Now, mm-hmm. I still may sit all day and see some deer during the day, but typically the peak activities, sunrise, sunset. Yeah, and from our sightings, I guess, on bucks on public land, it's they're just all over the place. Like, mm-hmm. we may get some of them early in the morning. We may get some of them in the evening. We may get some of them in the middle of the day. We were hunting during a tornado warning in the middle of November. It was 72, something like that. It was a decoy buck. Yeah, super to. warm day. Like, out there in this stuff, lightweight yeah. turkey hunting clothes. It was real stale. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it was, it was like just terrible like wet, you know, terrible, yeah, terrible weather. hunting weather. They're not going to move, you know. We killed a buck that morning at... 10:30, and then a tornado like it and then a literally a storm tornado through, warning yeah. came through and we had to get the buck out of the woods and yeah it's the middle of the rut yeah. but that's yeah. just it just seems very random at least when I, we look at it. Nah. we see a lot of bucks like moving mid-morning and midday that are almost you know they're almost moving from bedding area to bedding area like they're going from this bedding area that has does in it to this bedding area that has does in it and i'm assuming they're just checking those does and they're just running nonstop mm-hmm. during that time looking for them could be it, it, it could be on, on public land too based on hunting pressure that, yes. like the example steve gave at 10 a.m some people are moving out and maybe it bumped them and mm-hmm. you were the beneficiary yeah. of that mm-hmm. as well i think the key to one of the things i keep in mind if i'm hunting public lands is you know i'm you're trying to pattern the deer pattern the hunters right mm-hmm. in the southeast at Nine o'clock, you're going to see half the hunters coming out of the woods. Breakfast. They're, they're kicking the deer around. <laughs> right. You, you should stay on your stand and uh-huh. let all the all these guys walk out because their feet are cold or they want to get something to eat or they want to get some coffee or just want to do something else. Uh-huh. Right. Um, that's when you need to stay in your stand. And, yeah. and some people don't see, and I think generally, I wouldn't. I don't see as many deer in the morning as I do in the afternoon because the problem there is that early morning activity pattern, the deer are already up and doing stuff while you're walking in. And so you're messing with where they are on your way in. And then you have to sit and let things calm down and then maybe pick another movement coming by that you didn't mess up by walking in. In the afternoon hunts, you're able to walk in well before that activity peak. Mm -hmm. And so you haven't messed anything up walking in. And so I think that's why people are more successful in the afternoons than they are in the mornings. Sure. And plus you don't have to get up as early. Right. <laughs> that makes sense. One thing I was, um, do you have a question? No, you want to no, stay no, on that good. one? But, but to follow that out, if I was going to hunt in the morning, I'd want to be on my stand well before yeah. sunrise. An hour, I mean, ideally even two hours before. Just That way everything calms back down yeah. and you're, then you're getting that natural behavior, if yeah. you will. I, I'm not going to challenge that. I think that's generally a good rule of thumb. Something I've been thinking about, though. Sure. I think I think that's a good. It depends. Um, if you know exactly where you're going, and you can get to that stand or wherever quietly, mm-hmm. there's been some places. I will be fully honest here that I was like, I'm going to go to such and such place. Never been there before. I, oh. I think I ruined it because oh, I was yeah. making so much racket, and I thought, you know what? I should have waited till I could just barely see, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you can be patient, take your time, and I kind of hunt your time. way. Well, yeah. from a hunting standpoint, it's totally situational. Mm-hmm. You may have a storm come through at midnight, and it may be blowing 25 miles an hour at 3, 34 in the morning. Woods are quiet. It's windy. The deer aren't 
able to pick you up as well. Contrast that with a frosty morning was crunchy with zero wind and they're, they can hear you walking from 400 yards. Mm -hmm. Like we strategically will pick those days to go into a super thick bedding area Mm -hmm. and be, if we have to be really intrusive to get in close to these, close enough to these bucks to try to kill them, we'll wait for conditions like that so that we can. And to your point, it may be more beneficial for you to do it right at daylight Mm -hmm. or it may be more beneficial for you to do it well before and it just all kind of it all kind of depends that's a good point um see that they even said it depends (laughs) (laughs) but i do i notice the same thing on the flip side of that coin if you go in if you go in before daylight it seems like you spook fewer deer in general because they aren't especially if you go in way before daylight like we use those headlamps on public land and we have walked up on windy days especially we have walked right up on deer feeding behaving normally with those lights and just shut the light off and just listen for them to move off and then walked right by them i'll be but if you do that and maybe there's some science to this i don't know that's where i'm going if you do that at gray light gone Hmm. they're out of there but I don't know if that's just because they're not used to seeing that at three o'clock in the morning, walking up through there, or what it is. I'm not sure. Could just be our by th- total our happenstance. Th- our theory is is like when it's just that dark, they just can't really see that well, and they I just really. I mean, we've walked reason, up close enough to wind. touch them almost. Yeah, hmm. but it, that it, the conditions have a lot to do with that too. Like if if it's windy and wet and everything's moving in the woods and you're walking up on them and you're being quiet it's like on a calm morning for example and you're walking and it's crunchy and you've got your lamp on out ahead of you and you see eyes if you kill that light and you just stand there for a long period of time and don't move a lot of times those deer will go back to what they're doing and you'll hear them walking around in there if, as long as your wind's not blowing to them, right. they smell right. you, you know, as over. you know. It doesn't matter what time of day. They smell you. It's done done deal. But I think a lot of times they hear us coming. Maybe they see the light as well to some degree, but they don't, they don't know exactly what it is. So then when you stop that movement, you stop that patternable shh, 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 shh that they associate with some sort of a threat, then they go back to what they're doing. And you let them, just in the dark, let them ease out of there, and then you can meander through there and get in your stand or get to your location wherever you're trying to hunt the whole point though is to alert as few deer as possible Mm -hmm. in that process and when you're able to do that regardless of what time you go the more deer you ultimately will see the the one that always comes to mind when we talk about that is you and i aaron we're walking and we're going into an area that we had never hunted before it had rained that night it was super windy and we were going to hunt along a slough and we're looking at our map and we're going in and we're kind of in some thick stuff and we kind of come around something and we look over and like i mean from here to ted is this doe just laying on the ground not look i mean like looking through us too just chewing her cud and we're like <laughs> you know, like do you remember that What's up? Like, oh yeah just yeah. the doe laying there and oh, we're yeah. like uh all right let's keep going i guess and just kind of went right and it was so quiet cause it rained all night and i think we were in um, well, it doesn't matter what we were in. Ground was quiet, and we just 
Went right past her. Never even such spooked her. Effective stealthy hunters, you knew how to walk quietly. <laughs> when the conditions are in your favor, <laughs> yeah. it gets a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I want to switch gears. I, we've already been talking a long time. I know you guys probably got other more important things to do than talk to us. You know, <laughs> we're, we're having a great time. Hunter. We're really enjoying but it. I wanted to Me ask too. you all about weather because we just talked about moon. What's what does weather do? Not much. Not much. Yeah. So cold front come through, is that going to get them up on their feet a little sooner? Is it going to make them move a little more, a little further? Are they going to, what's the long word that I can't spell? Tortuosity. Tortuosity. (laughs) (laughs) Are they going to be more tortuous Um, or none of the above? In in general, no, none none of the above. And again, I want to come back to saying this. Steve and I both. We want there because because <laughs> we hunt and we want to find that pattern. You know, it's like you find the answer. This it's like is the, the recipe. Answer. We have solved the you know the deer yeah. hunting question here, and we have sl- sliced this up about every way you can slice it. And there's just generally no no pattern at all. But but we keep coming back to these foundations. Deer have to move every day. Deer are gonna bed every day. Deer have to have a feeding bout a couple of them at minimum every single day. And so are slight deviations or even major deviations in temperature. Um, Do we see big shifts in their behavior? Not really. Now, there may be an instance where someone could say, all right, there's this catastrophic front that's going to come through, and it's way out of normal, and it's going to be a blizzard. I can sit here and say that maybe so. Maybe there's a perception, big change in barometer, and maybe they can perceive it. We just don't have enough reliable instances with data where we can say, yep, there's a pattern to that. Because those are really few and far between. We're typically looking at the subtle changes from day to day and week to week. And and the way we've kind of always analyzed those data is over the course of the hunting season, you got the the non-rutting time and you got the rut. And so we'll take these deer and we establish kind of a baseline. You know, again, here's how it normally moves. And then you start comparing that with these different weather events. And and just in general, there may be some slight changes, but, and this is where Steve would and I would get into the, did we find something statistically significant? Meaning that, oh yeah, there's a statistical signal here. And then we look at the, the deer hunter side of it and we would go, all right, yeah, there was something statistical, but on average, a deer is only going to move, you know, 50 more yards a day based on this or not. That's not enough to compel me, again, to go, this is going to be a really good day or not. But you just, again, the, the reverse logic and you come back to, deer have to move every day. They're going to move every day. And we haven't found anything that is going to supersede the rut, the rut is the single most reliable thing that's going to cause a deer to move more and to move more during daylight hours. They don't wind, nothing to do with it. There was one well, exception with the wind. Yeah, now, study I did long, many years ago in South Texas, above 15 miles an hour of wind, they didn't move. And I, we explained it based on too much uh, interference with their hearing. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Too windy, they can't hear. They don't feel safe, so they're not going to move with real high winds. And plus, if you're in a tree stand and, and that w- tree is blowing, it, you know, 
It can make you seasick. Yeah. You're going to miss your shot if you get it. So I don't hunt on real windy days. <laughs> I got a we question. Do. Yeah. A lot. But yeah. it's for a different reason. Yeah. Um, it goes back to what we were saying a while ago. The wind inhibits their senses, so it allows us to get closer to them. Okay. So if you're hunting a mature buck that's in that screen cover, that's in that thick cover, yeah, yeah. and he's keyed up on a calm day or whatever, maybe he's not keyed up, but maybe he can just hear you walking from further, mm-hmm. or maybe he can see you easier on a calm day. If we have those conditions, we use them to get closer. To, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. We use them yeah, to get closer right. to that deer's bedding area. Yeah, you're not relying on him to come out and right. move around. Mm-hmm. In fact, we're rarely relying on that yeah. when yeah. it comes yeah. to hunting mature bucks. We are always looking for a way to get where he spends his daylight hours. The very best thing that could ever happen is you you actually get eyes on him, and you can crawl to a position where – I mean, he can't go. That's where your odds just continue to go up the closer you get. Yeah, yeah. It's less dependent on what he's going to do because that's, as we're kind of talking about, generally speaking, pretty unpredictable. It's like yeah. he could go, even even if you get 75 yards from him bedded down, it's like he can go or he could just stay in that same area and never get into bow range or whatever it may be. Do they move in general, mature bucks, do they move in general less than the rest of the deer? Like you just mentioned percentages a while ago. Does a mature buck move, you know, 40% of the day and every all the other deer move 80% or do you understand where I'm going with that? Or is there no correlation to that? I, I don't know if we had enough really, and by mature I mean five and a half plus, I don't know if we really had enough in that category to give a good answer, but I can maybe address it a little bit differently there, there is certainly a tendency with home range size mm-hmm. is that you'll see that shrink with age class over time. And so often the smallest home ranges for bucks will be mature bucks. Yeah. Though that's kind of a surrogate. It's not directly the answer to your question, but you might assume they might move a little bit less than some of these younger bucks. Why do you think that is? Old and kind of, I don't get around as <laughs> fast or as, as frequently as I used to. Yeah. Not, not compared to Luke or Ted over there. They're, Certainly they're, not Luke. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think? I think they figure out that. Safety that zones. Year after year, this is my pattern. This is what works. And I, I don't think it's like cognition. I don't think it's like they're getting smarter. I, I, I think it's they lived. Mm-hmm. I think it worked. Bucks that demonstrated different behavior, they got killed. Yeah. Bucks that demonstrated this behavior, they lived. So that if you're on public land and you're looking for a buck that is alive, that is that big, odds are higher that he's going to exhibit that behavior. Right. Yes. He's fi- found some way to tuck away from where most of the guns are going to be. Right. Mm-hmm. Or bows. Yeah. What's some interesting stuff y'all have found tracking these individuals? That's one thing that is that we kind of have glossed over a little bit here, but you've mentioned multiple times is that bucks especially as they get older maybe this this isn't just as they get older maybe they are all very individual from birth great lead into our personality analysis which which is what luke's been working on a lot lately luke you want to kind of jump jump in you got you got a mic right yeah why don't you give us a quick thumbnail sketch of yeah of your stuff this study was done on the big black river down in you know central Mississippi from 2016 to 2019 and one of the things that was kind of odd that we noticed when we started you know plotting all these GPS points on a map from the very get-go 
was that there were kind of two distinct categories of deer. You've got the, and these are all adult bucks, two and a half years and older. You've got the category of deer that they're homebodies. And you know, they're hanging out in, you know, 600 acres-ish. And then you've got another category of deer where if you look at them in a certain time of year, they're a homebody. But then if you just ignore what they're doing and then look at them again six months later, they're three miles away being a homebody somewhere else. And so as more of these GPS collars went out and as we started to collect more and more data over more and more years for individual deer, we started to develop these personalities. So we've got about two thirds of our deer are sedentary. And sedentary deer are the homebodies, you know, uh, home range is about 600 acres. And then we've got a third of our deer that we call a mobile personality. And so those mobile deer generally have two home ranges, right? Separated by on average about four and a half miles. But we've got a deer that we just collared on a more recent project that was not even in the same study area. Um, and he's got 18 miles between his home ranges. So he spends, he spends the fall and the rut in Mississippi on the Mississippi side of the Mississippi river. And then, he, ju he actually just went back to Louisiana like he did last year within three days of when he did it last year. So it's like they're on this <laughs> internal clock, very much so like the does that are, you know, they've got this internal clock running based on photo period for breeding. We don't know what the cue is for these guys when they're moving. But now he's in Louisiana, you know, 18 miles away, and he's going to be pigging out on soybeans for the next few months. And, you know, he swam the Mississippi River when it was in peak flood stage last year. I mean, it was literally over a mile and a quarter wide. And if you've ever seen the Mississippi River in peak it's flood ripping. stage, it is yep. ripping. It is moving. And I was fully <laughs> expecting to see his GPS point start on the Mississippi side of the river way upstream. And when he got to Louisiana, he was going to be way down. But, I mean, when he, when he popped across, I mean, he was pretty much in line with where he was. What? And so... The personalities, like we've kind of categorized the home ranges in terms of what, um, how those personalities fit home ranges. But if you look at the sedentary deer that we categorize based on their home range characteristics and the mobile deer in terms of how they move with excursions, the sedentary deer are actually more mobile than the mobile deer are. So mobile deer go on far fewer excursions. Sedentary deer go on about six times as many excursions as mobile deer do. So it's well, like the mobile deer... Define what an excursion is. So an excursion is basically just when a deer leaves his home range and goes on a really short duration trip. Generally, we think of it as an exploratory movement. And so those excursions happen, you know, peak of the rut generally is where we see a lot of excursions. We see them a lot in the peak of the rut, and then we see a lot of excursions in early springtime. And so, you know, the hypothesis that, you know, deer biologists have come up with is that they are either looking for breeding resources, breeding opportunities, if that excursion takes place in the peak of the rut, or if it's a springtime excursion, they're probably looking for new forage resources because they've expended so much energy over the course of the rut. You know, an adult buck might lose upwards of 25% of his body mass over the course of the rut. So once the rut has ended and spring green up is just starting to hit the landscape they are in dire need of good food because antlers are about to start developing and they're you know getting ready for when they do it again next year if you look at any individual buck none of them really cleanly fit into any category they're all such individuals you know we've got sedentary personality and we've got a mobile personality but there is so much variation within deer to deer that 
that's about as fine scale as we can get the personalities, sedentary and mobile, because they're all such individuals. Like, but they're not. None of them are nocturnal. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, when when y'all were talking about that earlier, I was thinking of we did a social media post a few weeks ago looking at how deer move the proportion of their points in food plots, for example, during the day versus at night on a low hunting pressure property and kind of compared, you know, between ages of bucks and how much time they're spending in the food plot in the early hunting season versus in the peak of the rut. And then I literally went out and looked in our data set, which has got 60 few odd adult bucks in it. I was looking for a deer I was trying to find one, which is not what we do in science. We like try to take the averages of what's going on and draw con conclusions that will apply to the deer population in general. But I literally went into that data set and tried to find a deer on a high hunting pressure property that was nocturnal. And it doesn't exist. Like I just, you just can't find it. You know, there are some deer that move a little more and there are some that move a little less, but they are all moving. Now the areas that he's moving in might change dramatically. You know what I mean? Like. If you look on the screen, probably about right now while you're watching this video, you'll see maps pop up of a deer that we were, is an individual deer looking at his movements from October versus the peak of the rut on a high hunting pressure property. And this is one of the highest hunting pressure properties we had in the study that the docs mentioned earlier. And there's one area in the middle of this huge ag field that he barely even stepped foot in in October. And this is a huge ag field. I'm talking a couple hundred acres. And there's this just chunk of a woodlot right in the middle of it that he barely stepped foot in in October. Didn't bed in it a single time. He just crossed through it once. And then if you look at his movements, specifically his beds during the peak of the rut, he beds in that one chunk. I mean, it's maybe an acre. Maybe. Probably not even that big. He beds in it seven times over the course of one week in the peak of the rut. And it's my theory is that because it's so secluded, hunters aren't hunting that little island of cover. They're in the big woodlot where the food plots are and all Did that kind of stuff. Did you see this year in after year? Like, was it repeatable we, year, one year to the next year? Or was this just one fall's worth of? We only had data for this buck for one year. So gotcha. it would have been awesome to be able to compare. But like, you know, you were just mentioning earlier, we would suspect that if that was a successful strategy for him year one, he'd do it again year two because it sure. worked. But, you know, maybe he got killed because he did something dumb. And so that he's just not going to do that again the next year. Right. Because you know? he's dead. So but there are all sorts of just cool individual things we see with these deer. Like one, when I was going through and mapping out these excursions, there was this one buck, he was a four and a half year old in 2018. And I don't know if he had just figured out where the soybeans were in relation to his home range, but every night for, I think it was 12 nights out of 15, he would go about a mile and a quarter to a soybean field as soon as the sun set, and then he'd be back in his home range by morning, every night, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, for like two weeks straight. And then they cut the soybeans and he didn't do it again. <laughs> we only had one we only had one year's worth of data for that buck too, so we couldn't, you know, compare if he did it the next year. Maybe they planted corn the next year anyway. But um, there's just so much cool stuff that you can learn when you just sit down and really study these individual deer because they'll do crazy stuff. I got I got a question that I think is one that I ask myself as a hunter all the time and is on been is on the list of topics that we were talking about. It's like how often does a buck use a bed, right? So if I'm, I'm 
a hunter and I'm scouting in the off season and I find this really good location and I'm like, okay, this checks all the boxes. It's got buck sign. It's got dense cover. It's got a lot of diversity. I think a buck's going to, and, and I find actual beds that tell me, okay, this is a larger bodied deer. I'm pretty convinced that a buck's using this. I always ask myself, is he going to be here today? And you, and that's, that's the mental game you play with yourself as a hunter, right? Is, mm-hmm. oh, is he even going to be there today? I'm going to walk all the way back there. Is he even there? And then you get there and you never, I mean, you when don't you know do, if he was or not. Yeah. When you trust it, you usually have a pretty good hunt. When you don't trust it, you're not going to have a good hunt because you don't have confidence in it and you start moving more and whatever else. But that that's always the question. And I think if you had some sort of reference to say, I got this percent of a chance that he's going to be here, it would make us all feel a lot more confident, right? Yeah. But well, Zach, can we get back with you in a year? Yeah. <laughs> because our next student coming in is going to be focusing on that exact question. Awesome. That's interesting. Yeah. Because I feel like that's – and and – I guess it, the thought would probably be it's individual, right? Like yeah. if a buck is one of these, you know, homebody deer compared to um, the one that's going on more excursions. That makes sense. Like think about bump and dump bucks. Yeah. Like people always ask, well, I just spooked a big buck. I ran into him on my way in hunting. I bumped him out of his bed. What's he going to do? It's like, we don't know what the hell. I have no idea <laughs> what he's going to do. We've seen them come right back and be laying in the same spot the next day. We've we've killed them 400 yards away the next mm-hmm. day because we basically didn't know they were there until we ran into them. And then we're like, oh, okay, well, where's another likely place where he could hide in here? And then we picked it the following day and managed to kill him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then we've never seen him again. Right. And it just runs the gamut of exactly. possibilities. Exactly. So it's impossible, or it's, at least it's been impossible for us to answer that question. But this sounds like that it probably has a lot to do with a pile of different factors mm-hmm. as to why one would, what would happen. And Zach, like what Luke was just talking about, just looking at w- within a particular week, what he was posting to social media a while back, there were some of those beds that were used a couple times, and mm-hmm. but there were a lot of different ones as well. But we can never then say that the landscape you're in cover may be more limited. Yeah. There may be fewer bedding spots on the landscape. So there may be more fidelity yeah. to those than we have. Um, That's actually it, something I was just thinking about is a buck that we bump and dumped one time was in Nebraska. And if you're looking at the landscape, it's like there are these very small bedding pockets. There was very small areas that had high enough diversity that the deer actually were going to spend their daylight hours and and especially you know older bucks you know younger bucks and does would kind of be spread out in you know more obvious places easier to see them but i think one of the main reasons he came back is one hunting pressure had been low it was early in the season and two i don't think he had a whole bunch of other options that weren't you know maybe miles away and it's just like yeah in that situation you may be more likely to come back where if you're dealing with you know a giant forested area where the next cover is several miles or you know or or, well i I guess it just depends like on those factors in general we find buck bedding areas by default on public land because of what you said earlier steve like you you pattern the hunters you figure Mm -hmm. out where they're going and then all of a sudden you've crossed off 90 percent of this area that you're looking at 
and you only have 10% left. And when you get in that 10% and you start seeing this thick cover, this diverse cover, like what we're discussing, that's where we anticipate a buck to be bedding. And sometimes they're not, sometimes they are, but we run into, we run into a fair number of them. I think just based on that alone yeah. mm-hmm. is they're not, they are in a spot where they've grown old and found a little hole where there's no people. Right. And what's actually more predictable than deer is hunters. Hunters. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like, it's sometimes comical where you're just like, oh, of course there's this trail here or somebody has put a stand here or, you know, there's that, there's like a ladder stand next to like an old rotten wood stand and it's it's like generations of hunting pressure right there. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times that, um, yeah, it, the, the deer have to be picking up on that stuff. It's yeah. like, it's, it's some foreign object. Well, there. They're, they're also <laughs> put there and people may kill bucks out of those yeah. stands in the rut that sit there all day long for two weeks straight. You never know. It may be on a trail that intersects between two bedding areas that bucks don't use during the daylight mm-hmm. at all other times of the year. They just use it during the rut at random, if yeah. you will, when they're chasing a doe through there or whatever, but. Steve Ditchkoff, our colleague at Auburn, did a really cool analysis uh, several years ago looking at stands that were hunted heavily and it was defined as two consecutive days in a row and versus stands that weren't hunted that way. And they looked at relative distances from those stands. And when a stand had been hunted for two days in a row, the deer were further away from that stand than they were from other stands that weren't hunted at the same intensity pressure. Uh-huh. And it took four to five days before the deer started to come back near that stand. And that was a really cool analysis. Yeah. And that's oh, yeah. another thing I'd love for us to do with our data yeah. if we were able to tease that out. Yeah, it's yeah. like you had this little spot on the landscape, you know, do not cross, do not enter. There was just, yeah. you know, the presence of hunters were there. And then there was about a three to five day memory, it seems like, before it took where hunters weren't on that spot where they started trusting to where they could go within a couple hundred yards of that stand site (laughs) so if you're going to your stand and hunting it you know two or three days and then working and then go back a couple of days the next weekend they've got you figured out yeah yeah that makes sense that's exactly what we see i'll tell you something though i wanted to remember to talk about luke brought up but about figuring something out is that one thing that, uh, and, and other people have, have noticed this too, and I, I guess I need to start with a big apology to some... To who? To me? No, not to you. <laughs> never to <never, never, laughs> um, I can't remember if it was via email or a phone call, but I had several of these years ago where hunters that were, you know, sure enough, serious hunters and serious about their camera data mm-hmm. would call up and say, can you please explain why this particular buck, I've got photos of them, you know, every single day. And then on, I'm making up a date here, but October 17th, he's gone. Well, everybody, okay, well, something happened, he died. But they'll have had like three years of that Mm -hmm. pattern on their cameras of where, and it was just like what Luke was saying with this buck that's crossing the river. And we've got several instances where it's within a couple days and they'll go 10 miles away. But I started uh, talking with someone else recently about, if you have a history with a, with a property and with your camera data, that you can start using that to your advantage from hunting about predicting 
especially if cover is limited on the environment, if you start documenting when this particular buck is in this particular area and in this particular cover, you can now start situating yourself on that cover ahead of time so that you can, you can, you can be there when he starts moving mm-hmm. to that, that cover patch and using it. I've heard of guys shooting bucks based off of trail camera patterns where it's something as weird as they won't show up until a specific day. Mm-hmm. And it's like well, year one, you know, he may be a four-year-old buck, five-year-old buck. He does the same thing, same thing, same thing to where it's like within a three-day time frame and within the same weather pattern, generally speaking. Hunting. And it's like that's when he comes in there and then that's when they get him. Yeah. And it may, he may be, you know, it's, it's kind of that classic um, like story of, oh, I hunted the same buck multiple years and he kept doing the same thing and i just looked at and and it comes down to an individual Mm -hmm. where he's got something he likes for whatever reason that he makes him feel safe or he's got does there or he's got a food source there whatever it may be and i just always find that that super interesting because from a public land standpoint well and not really running trail cameras it's like it's hard to pick up on those patterns you're just more or less reading the sign but when i I always find that so fascinating to hear people's trail camera patterns that they find part of my apology to to the hunter probably like uh you know your camera batteries or the trigger or you know selective memory on but the gps collars they prove it they are (laughs) making these big shifts in home range within a few days of each other from year to year yeah. It's really impressive. One of our mobile bucks that Luke's documented, we, we caught him in, in kind of mid to late August one year. And the next day, he picked up and, and moved 13 miles and lived 13 <laughs> miles away. And we thought, dang, he, we really messed him up when we put that collar <laughs> yeah. on. But then the following February, he came back 13 miles and came back to where we caught him. And then, you know, we were playing the, like, I wonder, and the next August, within a week, that same date, he took off and went back 13 miles and lived over there. And then the next February, and we were trying to, the collar, we're having a drop-off mechanism malfunction on that deer, and we wanted that collar. And uh, so we were telling that, we, we told the hunters, all right, he's on your property. Hunt him real hard and get the <laughs> right. collar for us. Yeah. And, and they hunted until late January, and uh, they didn't get him. Dang. And my graduate student, Colby, at the time, he said, well, don't worry. February, he'll be back, and I'll kill him when he comes back. We have a special collection permit because mm-hmm. we needed to get this collar. Uh, right, right. So he got him when he came back in February. 13 miles. 13 miles <laughs> about the same date in February when he came back the previous. That's so crazy. Yeah. I mean, you can't even – there's really not even a way to get that data unless you just happen to have a buddy where he goes to, too. You know, it's yeah. like unless you have a collar on it, it's like it's such a mystery. Mm-hmm. And that's what – I mean, that's always what's going to be fascinating. And no matter what we find out – well, there's so many research, hunters like, out there that run one trail camera on a 100-acre property, and they get a nighttime picture of a random big buck on October 28th in the Midwest. And they're like, okay, I'm hunting the next three days or three weeks all day every day in my stand on my property until I kill that buck. It's like you have no idea <laughs> what that thing is doing right. and if he's even going to come back during that three-week time frame or ever. 
for that matter. It's like you need more, you just need more data mm-hmm. at that yeah. point. Unless you have a lot of camera history with that buck and knowing mm-hmm. his behavior. That, that's well, that's right. what happened to me when I was younger is I would oh, yeah. I would get a picture of one and I'd be like, okay, I'm taking off work the next two weeks and I'm not settling for anything but him. Mm-hmm. And I would go out there and I would beat my head against a tree pretty much for two weeks. Yep. And I would all, I and I would most. pass up other bucks because I had one random picture of him. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I was like, no, I'm going to go and hunt and have fun and not worry about this unless unless I can get more information right. to go off of in the future. So we, we do a lot of talking with our graduate students and are among ourselves and fellow uh, professors and biologists about, you know, deer stuff. And Bronson and I, years ago, we would kind of argue about uh, do, do, does the doe have a preference for what kind of buck is going to breed her? And, and he argued, well, make your argument. And then I'll I'll make my. Are you, are you trying to embarrass him a little bit here? No, no, no. He was right. He was okay. right. Okay. He's the one that got him. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm serving my crow right now. So no, the whole the whole thing is, you know, in all these. So uh, think of birds as a great okay. example. Um, the the males are displaying for her. Mm-hmm. She is choosing the high quality male to breed with, yep. and that's to her advantage. She's going to get some type of index of of his age his quality his genetics etc that he's going to be a good father and therefore they have good offspring Mm -hmm. we started thinking about why would this not in some way be going on with white-tailed deer it's it's to the does advantage to mate with a high quality father well we always kind of thought that this was going on what we would say passively meaning that from the the buck dominance hierarchy structure that they're sorting out who the best male is, and then the best male is going to have more opportunities to, to breed the female. So that was kind of the way it was kind of a passive selection. She's not doing it. The buck sorted out, and whoever the winner mm-hmm. is going to get. Yeah, and that's the kind of side that I was arguing yeah. 15 years ago was, you know, the doe, when she is in estrus, she's going to be breedable. She will stand and let any buck that's behind her breed her. The bucks will kind of figure out who's going to be behind her. Mm-hmm. And she's going to let herself be bred, so she won't have a preference. But but that's why we we talk stuff and, and disagree, and but we tweaked. We want we talk how about can we this. Test this. How can we test it? And we worked for like five years with the idea until we came up with the money to do it. And we wanted to look at three factors because you know the idea that bigger, older bucks do most of the breeding, and that's. Uh, would also be the choice for a female in theory because she wants to be her offspring that she's going to invest her whole year in mm-hmm. produ- growing and, and uh, nursing and, and you know seeing to successful life. She needs to pick that really successful buck. Well, an older buck is going to be he's successful because he's lived and bigger antlers are an indication of he's good at getting resources. So you'd want to you know, pick a, a buck that has big antlers. And um, a bigger body is indicative of a healthier male. Mm-hmm. And so all these three things could be argued, well, those are good signals for the female to prefer. And collectively, studies have been done over the years on, on deer, uh, red deer and, and different deer species around the world that have shown that older more mature, bigger antlered 
bucks tend to be preferred by but nobody's ever teased those apart like is it the big antlers or is it the older age or is it the bigger body all of those are collinear collinear they're They're correlated to each other a younger buck is going to have smaller body and a smaller antler an older buck is going to have older he's going to be bigger bodied and bigger antlered than that younger buck and a fully matured buck is going to be older still bigger bodied and bigger antlered so you can't separate those out we wanted to separate it out so we came up with a study design and we searched and we found the money and we did it the only way to control all of these is to vary one of them have the same aged bucks same body size vary antler size same antler size, same age, small body versus large body. Same, all right, I want to make sure I get all the different combinations. Uh, same antlers, same, same body, body different size, age. different ages. And we, with our experimental deer population that we had to work with, we were able to you know, come up with a couple of different combinations of bucks under each of these categories and over several years and we were simultaneously doing a study looking at uh, the fetal growth curve and so we had to breed does at a specific time so we had to know when a doe was in estrus and breed her and then collect her fetus at a certain amount of time later to to document the size of the fetus relative to her the age and, and all that but what we were doing was this fun study looking at female preference so we could come up with, we, we cut all of our bucks' antlers off in the fall to protect them, protect us, protect the, the fencing because they, they fight a lot and all. We cut the antlers off, so bucks are going to have the same stub, mm-hmm. about an inch and a half. And we could find the same age bucks, a bigger buck and a smaller buck that are the same age. We have different combinations of those. Same thing with um, different uh, ages but the same body size you know we come up with all these but how, how do you vary the antler size you know it's almost impossible to come up with two bucks at the same age same body size and they have greatly different antlers but we also wanted to be able to switch them too so that one buck would have big antlers one week and, and then the small antlers the next week because it might be you know a woman might look at you, Aaron, and say, wow, he's hot. <laughs> and it, it you know, might be because you have a beard or, or body size. Or Next something, week, shave the beard. They might like you Shoot. just because you're like you. The camo. <laughs> and another, another woman might you know, look at Zach and, wow, he's the hunk. And it might not be anything about other than their, their fine personalities. Right. So we wanted to vary all that and then have a lot of sample size and I'm rambling here. Yeah. No, no. I'm rambling. <laughs> this is good info. This is good Cut info. It short. So we, we, it was a properly designed study. So how are we going to vary the antler size? Well, we had to make a mechanical antler. That's these and guys. That's where these guys are. And so uh, we we had our study bucks and we cut their antlers off and then we uh, and we had to custom design these 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 are uh, machined aluminum forms and uh, we, we put a base plate over their their pedicles and then screwed those base plates into those pedicles and then we had sets of large and small antlers that were attached to a an, another piece of the 
the match. And so these could be set over the top of these pedicles. And you and just moved them yeah, we from could, one you buck knock, to the knock next? Knock a buck down, put the big antlers on them, let them do that for 10 days, and then knock them again and, and put the little antlers on them. So the same buck would have the big antlers for a while and then the small <laughs> antlers. And, and we, we had three small holding pens. We'd put the dough that was just prior to estrus. Because if she's going to make a choice, that's the time she's going to be one, you know, hanging around with the buck when she's coming into estrus. That's when it really matters. And so the does were in estrus, one, one doe at a time. We'd put them in there. We'd have a buck on either side of her, and we video cameraed her for, videoed her for 24 hours with an infrared camera, monitored how much time she spent next to each fence as an indication of her preference for the buck. Really cool information. Mm-hmm. What'd you learn? We learned that when given a choice between a really big antler and a really small antler, they chose the big antler 80% of the time. Really? It, it matters. Size matters when it comes to a doe's preference. What about body size and all that stuff? That, that's Was there... what surprised the heck out of me. They didn't have a preference for age. They didn't have a preference for body size. But it all antlers. tied down to this. So that's a visual cue for them this when is... it comes to selection. Yeah, so I think all those variables are are represented with that, is that you're going to have to be an older buck, and in general, you're going to be bigger bodied. Body size is typically correlated with antler size. So I think that's just the easiest signal for them to verify that is an older buck, Hmm. is the antler. Hmm. I'll be darned. And that's very interesting. We can't take it as far either. Notice we're comparing the extremes here. Right. We're comparing an antler that would be associated with a one or two year old buck and an antler associated with a four, five, six year old mm-hmm. buck. So, um, but when given the choice of these extremes, this was the the clear winner. <laughs> yeah. Sure, it's hilarious. So they they are having that perception. They are able to see that cue. It is some sort of display. That's right. Yeah, yes. that's that, interesting. That would work to her advantage. This is a proven male. Yeah, he's lived for four, five, six years. Yeah. So. She should prefer to mate with him. This this is a gamble. Mm-hmm. He, he may end up being that big or bigger, but you don't know now. Because so right. he's an the, individual, and so he now, may make some dumb mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so here's, here's a question, though. In a, in a real-life setting, how would a doe choose a buck? Really good question. That, that was kind of my, my perspective. She can't choose. Yeah. But – because if there's seven of them chasing her around, yep. at what point is it like, is she making the decision or is big old boy just plowing down the small ones to say, hey, no, I'm I'm well, making. Correlate this to uh, some of the other breeding studies we've done using genetic fingerprinting of offspring and fathers and, and dams. And, and we, we documented 25% roughly of twin fawns are multiple paternity, meaning Two different fathers father twins in 25% of the time. So one out of every four sets of twins you see, the two twins have different fathers. That's crazy. We've shown that in research pens. We've shown it in in the wild in a range of age structures and uh, sex ratios. It doesn't matter. 25%, but you you can take that to the bank. Hmm. They're going to be multiple fathers. Uh, So a lot of bucks are involved in breeding. Now, how could she implement this preference? There's 
I mean, this would be a whole series of cool studies if we, you know, long-term funding and, and specialized research facilities. Mm -hmm. It would be neat to look at the timing of estrus relative to exposure. When does she ovulate relative to being around a big antlered buck versus a smaller antlered uh, buck? Yeah. What a, a doe can, what a female eats can potentially affect the uh, pH and, and the, the environment, the physiological environment within her reproductive tract that might affect the preference of one sperm or, or another. And, and we look, we question about fetal sex ratio and whether or not uh, a doe would be choosing to produce more males versus more females. And that's another whole series of questions we've right. been playing with. Um, how could she modify her sex ratio well she might be modifying the environment that affects the motility of the x uh semen versus the y semen hmm. uh, as the male is presenting both of those to her in equal roughly equal numbers one of them is going to breed and one of them's not and generally uh, one of one of those sperm is going to be successful, and boy, I'm rambling. I'm going to shut up. <laughs> I'm going to shut up. We, it's so so cool. We get yeah, yeah, it's awesome. So deep on this, and I know that's y'all aren't necessarily into deep physics. No, I, I, I I'm interested, interested in it. Yeah, I'm so very sad. interested in it. I don't think there's a way she is going to be able to actively say you and only you. Right, that's just not going to happen. Yeah. But what she may be able to do is predispose herself to, to increase the likelihood. Okay. So kind of the stuff Steve was talked about, as well as female excursions mm -hmm. are also documented now. So maybe when it comes to be that time, deer have signposts, bucks are leaving their calling card. Maybe she is also seeking him out mm -hmm. to some degree or being mm -hmm. in an area where she knows at that time of year is his territory and increasing her odds as well. Yeah. Those are just some of the kind of the working hypotheses mm -hmm. now. Yeah, be interesting down the road. Hope yeah. so. If you can get that stuff worked out, those are really cool. Is your mind melted yet? Yeah, it's interesting <laughs> because you brought up birds, and I think about it all the time with turkeys. It's just like obviously, obviously, there's a ton of display going on with turkeys, mm -hmm. and it is funny to think about. Like if these deer have these antlers and they're all different shapes, what factor does that play in right. breeding? It's yeah. Very fascinating. Hundreds and hundreds of other questions that we could continue to ask you guys. I mean, that's that's what's so cool. When you look at it from a hunting perspective, and, and I always think, well, we'll just figure it out by scouting. It's like, we're well, never going to figure it out by scouting because you just don't have the... Re the resource isn't there to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. You're getting but a little bit at a time. When you or have these GPS collars or these really focused studies. I mean, that's just the type of stuff that we can all learn from yeah. as hunters as well. And mm -hmm. I just think it's, yeah. we learn too. Yeah. And yeah. where's the best place you mentioned the YouTube channel earlier, but, um, mentioned the Instagram page as well. Yeah. MSU deer lab on Instagram, as well as Facebook and, and Twitter and, and are the kind of stuff we talk about and geek out about that you've heard a lot today. Tune in to our uh, podcast, deer university. Oh, sweet. And that's the stuff we talk about. So our podcast isn't about hunting per se. It's about deer biology and management and its relationship to hunting and, and land management. That's awesome. kind of our in our wheelhouse there. That's what we try to make it all about. Yeah, that's awesome. I think that uh, 
I mean, like we said, everybody can learn from that stuff. Mm-hmm. Heck yeah. Pretty awesome. Sweet. Yeah. And we also have msudeerlab.com, a website that we have stuff posted. Yeah. Awesome. Stuff about disease, about the rut. Yeah, the whole stuff we talked about on the rut is right there on msudeerlab.com. We fully explain the, the rut and its variability or lack thereof from, from year to year. So it's just topics like that. We have a, a special section on disease, which is kind of driven by, I'm a hunter, I kill a deer, what is this? Mm-hmm. So we have all the most common diseases hunters are going to see on a deer carcass and just all, all the common things like that, habitat management, food plot management. So, so it's, it's a resource for people. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great thing. I was going to, I was going to ask that earlier. Like, you know, we talked a lot about how as a private landowner, you could manipulate the landscape in your favor to bump wildlife numbers. What is a resource that people can use? If I'm a private landowner sitting in Mississippi, for example, what do I, who can I go to and what are some resources that I could use to get some help on my property? Most state wildlife agencies in the southeast and in a lot of the eastern states have something called the Deer Management Assistance Program, which was an agency program actually developed as a research project here at Mississippi State back in the 1970s and early 80s. It was brought out uh, as a demonstration project by Mississippi Department of Wildlife and Fisheries and was so successful at its peak managing biologists managing two million acres of of habitat in the state Uh, i think every state in the southeast and many other states in the eastern northeastern areas now have dmap programs that are designed to facilitate deer management biologists can come out and visit a property and and advise them and then uh, an often often involved part is the the biologist gets the data from the harvested deer on that property. The biologist ages the jawbones, gets that information back to the landowner so they're more informed. And oftentimes there's incentive, management incentives uh, that uh, a DMAP landowner might be able to get extra tags for specialized buck harvest or extra doe harvest if you, if you have an overpopulation. Those biologists, they can't spend a lot of time on your land, but they can come out and at least spend the day with you mm-hmm. and, and look around and give you advice on habitat management, deer population management, and if you enroll in a DMAP program, they can subsequently see you on an annual basis and give you a report and advisement. That's, yeah, that's good information. I think there's a lot of resources out there that people don't even know exist like that, so... Yeah. yeah, that's very useful, I think. Well, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. It's Absolutely. been awesome. I've learned a ton and really enjoyed the conversation. Me look, too. Look forward to future conversations. Yeah, we got to do this again because yeah. I still got like 30 more questions. <laughs> do it again. <laughs> like, hopefully next time there won't be a tornado warning. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no we'll have to keep our eyes on the window. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Thank you.